Hey, I'm Fuckers. It's Max and 99 in the studio today here with the show notes. Excited to get to this. We actually have a lot to get to because of the amazing amount of feedback that we got on our healthcare episode. But before we begin, you may have noticed that we had an almost simultaneous drop in the feed regarding uh, a listener of ours who sadly passed away. And that is Nettie McGee, one of the original unfuckers from Outagamie County, the one who made Outagamie kind of our adopted county and Wisconsin our adopted state and our our adopted hometown where Nettie used to spend weekends on the corner of College and Appleton protesting pretty much anything and everything in the world because she was a justice warrior through and through. So not going to go into too much more detail about Nettie right here because that's why we have the other drop, but wanted to bring everybody's attention to a fundraiser that's going on to help cover the burial costs for Nettie uh, according to her wishes. So for that, I'm going to pass that over to 99. Yeah, so this is just a little message from the fundraiser. It says, Nettie McGee spent her life working on behalf of others. As a result, she did not amass a nice retirement or send-off account. Her wishes were for a simple, no casket, no embalming burial in a prairie. The cost for just this is in the neighborhood of $7,000. Other expenses are obviously going to show up, so I'm planning on raising $10,000 by Monday or soon after. That was the past Monday and they're almost there, so the organizer has guaranteed her family they will not have to worry about these expenses and invites you to be a part of this noble cause. And as we're recording, the fundraiser currently has $7,726 raised. So that covers the cost of the prairie, I believe, the mm-hmm. plot there, which I love. And it, it's just very it's netty. So, netty. So, so, yeah, I mean, if anyone has ever dealt with, <laughs> with this type of situation before, you know there's there's always something. And it's it's not a cheap endeavor, unfortunately. So, yeah, let's help Nettie. You know, let's send her off in the way she deserves. If you can, as Max would say, see your way clear to it, to donate. That's right. And if anybody wants to get a look at how freaking adorable yet badass Nettie is, was, she is now the profile picture in Bob Knudsen's Unfuckers at All group Mm. on Facebook, which is is adorable. Yeah. So miss you, Nettie, but we're always going to keep you in our hearts and at the front of our minds when we're writing these episodes. The one thing I uh, mentioned on the other show that I appreciated greatly about Nettie was how uncompromising she was. She always pushed to do a little bit more, to do a little bit better, and to do it right away because the things that she advocated for are timely and they can't wait. And so with that spirit, let's move on into show notes and talk about a few things related to the healthcare episode. Now, first of all, just a quick comment on the the healthcare episode and, and where we kind of landed on our level setting episode. As we told everybody, this was going to be a first pass at a foundational episode to try and explain mostly really how big and complicated the problem is. We all interact with healthcare in in one way or another. Either we're going through it. We have a loved one uh, that requires care. We've all been to doctors, to the hospital, to the emergency room. It's all around us. It's a part of life. It is just a part of being a human being in this world. And in America, we do things a lot differently than other places in the world. The cry for single payer or to just do better or to fix things or bring costs down or to stop the fuckery among insurance companies or pharmacy benefit managers or big pharma, so on and so forth, 
is palpable. You feel that it's real and it's right and it's righteous and it and it's okay for us to ask for these things and to demand the government and private companies to do better. What I was trying to illustrate in the level setting episode is that our problems might be bigger and more complex than even most of us realize because of the amount of money that's at stake. Money complicates everything. Profits complicate everything. And when you have a perverse system of incentives, you think about just that statement, a perverse system of incentives. The healthcare industry as a for-profit model is designed to do just that, make a profit. But it is also intended to get you better and to fix what ails you or prevent you from getting sick as quickly as possible. And those two things will never be aligned. There will always be tension between trying to make people better as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible, and as affordably as possible, and then also make a profit. So the size of the issue is also related to the size of the industry. So we established that it's 20% of the country's GDP. So 20% of all of the economic activity in some way comes back to relate to healthcare. Now, one listener was, I think, prescient enough for our forward-looking episodes to suggest that perhaps we take insurance companies out of the GDP equation related to healthcare because insurance companies are a financial product. Health insurance is a financial product within the financial industry. It just so happens that it helps relate, that it relates to, and it helps guide uh, transactions within the healthcare industry. But it is a financial product. And I think that's a it's a very valid statement to make. It doesn't excuse the industry for some of its practices and the the abundance of, of profit that they make on our backs. And that was the other piece of the puzzle that I wanted to really kind of explore in the initial episode is, yes, to demonstrate the complexity and the size of the issue and the industry, but also to talk about that one concept of surplus capital, the idea of profits. Because again, if you take this from a Marxist lens, all surplus capital, all profits, is considered to some degree to be wage theft. These are profits that otherwise could have gone to those who manufacture the work, the services, the people that are in charge of the production, or could actually have originated as just savings in the pockets of the people and the consumers who are part of the system. So those surplus profits, who did those benefit? Where does that go? And what I wanted to really illustrate, because this is unfucking the republic and I come at everything through a mostly economic and socioeconomic lens, is that the abundance of excess capital in the system and the profits that are made from the private enterprises and the nonprofits, which we'll talk about in our next episode, those profits would have otherwise gone to people working in the system or they would have gone to the reduction of the cost drivers in the system. So when we look at the, the industry as a whole, we cannot separate the profit motives and the perverse incentives related to care. And that's why, to me, it is also an economic story. So the feedback, as one might imagine, given the uh, just the, the level that our audience operates at, was just outstanding. So I appreciate all the feedback that came in, and there was quite a bit of it. Now, we have a follow-up episode. It is not coming right away. We're going to talk a little bit about our production schedule. We have a few things that we want to get to before we get to the next unfucking on healthcare. So we're going to have a little bit of a gap between them, but not long. I promise that we have a lot of notes and a ton of things sort of prepared for that next episode, but it's a lot of work. It's kind of a doozy. 
but we have other things that we want to get to, and we'll discuss those maybe towards the end of the show. So for now, let's dig into the feedback specifically. The first one that I actually came in most recently, but I wanted to put it up top because it's from one of the unfuckers that had sent us one of the four queries that we kind of started the last show with. So this is from Sam E., who said, The healthcare industry is relentlessly complex and opaque at nearly every turn. This underscores the hocus pocus of how out of control the expense of the industry is and how much chaff has grown out of an otherwise generally well-introduced profession. Some of the nuances are as critical to understanding the problem as why Native American Indians can't get home loans. So I appreciate that callback and reference. So he sent in a a very long email, and I'm actually going to pick pieces of that and reintroduce the next episode with some of what he's saying because uh, Sam's observations are really keen and on point. The one that I wanted to bring out today is his first, and that is, quote, in order to discuss healthcare billing, you need to understand something called relative value units, RVUs. This may seem to be a little more weedy than the podcast usually gets. However, understanding this relates to the industry as it is essential to understanding the relationship between supply and demand in the petroleum industry. Once again, these unfuckers know how to get to my heart. They talk about Milton Friedman. They talk about oil. They talk about Native Americans. So, uh, I again, I appreciate the callbacks. And on this one specifically, Sam, I just wanted to let you know that we are going to be talking about RVUs because it's important to building the financial modeling around the industry, just as it's important to discuss charge master sheets, how the insurance companies can negotiate or how the hospital systems can negotiate with the insurance companies. There, There's going to be a lot more nuance in the next section, but what I had to do for the next episode, obviously, after the level setting one, is to really start to break this down and narrow it down into chunks. So, so a little bit of a look into what's next is looking at the hospital system and then looking at its relationship with insurers and how the ACA built upon that relationship to sort of codify the system that we have now. That makes it so utterly complex, but also even more profitable than it was prior to the ACA. So that's where I'm going to take the next episode. I'm going to take your uh, some of your points as a jumping off point yet again, Sam. So I appreciate you sending that in and uh, look forward to the next one when we drop it. Now, Timor S., who we haven't heard from in a little while, I was excited to see Timor come through, said, I want to bounce off 99's idea of universal healthcare, specifically on how it relates to mean testing or means testing. We are used to conservatives pushing back against the notion of universal, but I think it's important to address one of the main talking points from the liberal side against it as well, and that is means testing. So, Timor, the, the only thing I'll say to this is that there is it, there's sort of de facto means testing in healthcare in how we apportion care through Medicaid. Medicare is a different situation, although there are elements of choice that relate to means testing within Medicare. So when you look at the system broadly, we've got health insurance that's provided through employers. Then you've got employers who provide the health insurance through self-insured pools. These are the big, biggest companies and they self-insure their customers, but they're using similar products and mechanisms and reimbursement rates, but they're just self-insuring and they're not doing it through private brokers. You've got Medicaid for uh, those below the poverty line. You've got Medicare for those over 65. And then you have a number of plans within Medicare that cover different things. There's different ways to approach Medicare. So the whole system's pretty complex. And now you have the exchanges through Obamacare. 
that are set up either at the federal level or at the state level, if there's a partnership there where people can buy directly into it. And if somebody does not buy into it, but has the means to do so, they are forced to pay a penalty. And that is how the Roberts court determined that this is essentially a tax on the entire country one way or the other. No matter what, you can't get away from paying into the system unless you are absolutely um, below the poverty line. So that's the general scope of it. Within that, there are elements of means testing, but there's no means testing as we saw with, let's say, student debt relief, where there is a hard cutoff at $125,000 for debt cancellation of $10,000. That's that's the means testing that we're used to. Means testing is applied, sadly, in our welfare programs. It's applied in our now the student loan forgiveness program. Means testing is something that is pretty popular to Democrats because as a talking point, they can say, but this isn't a giveaway to the wealthy. In our topical cream student debt show that you're going to hear at some point, we're going to talk a little bit more about means testing and how regressive that idea is when applied to student loans. And for the most part, means testing is, is bullshit because... And actually, Timor had shared a couple of articles, one of which was from the Jacobin, that, and we had actually resourced that article when we were doing the student debt episode originally. The idea of means testing is bureaucratic, complicated nonsense because it actually puts up barriers to those people who would otherwise benefit from the so-called means testing, meaning it creates a bureaucratic nightmare. Think about the child tax credit versus the direct child credit payment that came to us. There should be no argument over that. And this is like my core argument against means testing, if you think about this, right? So a certain segment, a significant segment of the population received direct payments throughout the pandemic per child within the household, per dependent, as opposed to how the system used to work, which is the same philosophy, the same people who are allowed to get that, but as a credit that came out in the wash at the end of the year. But in order to get that credit at the end of the year, you also had to be adept enough to know how to claim that on your tax return. And so if you went to one of the for-profit tax preparers, like an H&R blocker or what have you, you have to actually know how to put all of the different inputs into the system in order to qualify for that credit. And you might already not be paying any taxes because you are at so low on the income threshold that you don't see the benefit of that credit. So if you're not paying taxes, there's no benefit to getting that credit against whatever tax obligation you might have. Whereas the direct payment goes right into your bank account. So they're saying that with the credit, everybody within the system that we have means tested will get this credit and it will be meaningful to you in the bank, except it's not. Whereas the direct payment actually goes directly to those people. So they're kind of lying to you when they say, oh, we can't afford to do one versus the other because the intent behind the credit was to give it to all these people. They just made it so complicated they couldn't get it. So you have to know how to work your way through the system. For example, in the student debt cancellation, you can get $10,000 if you make less than $125,000 in your household. You can also get another $10,000 potentially if you have qualified for Pell Grants. So you see how they layer in the bureaucratic bullshit with these forgiveness programs that make it so complicated. For I mean, most people don't know how to fill out a tax return on their own. You can do that 
you can actually go to the IRS, download the forms, and you can file your taxes every single year for free using the IRS tools. But it is such a complex, convoluted fucking nightmare that people don't know how to do that. And that's why they rely on these for-profit tax preparers who are the same ones that lobbied to make it complicated, by the way. They're the ones that actually designed the forms because they knew it would be too hard for people to figure out. So in all of these different little ways, it's death by a thousand cuts. If you work two fucking jobs and you've got a couple of dependents in your house and you've got student loans out there, you've got a car loan, you've got medical loans and and expenses all over. Maybe you work two part-time jobs and you have to buy insurance on the exchange and and all the way down the line. That is the life of the middle, the lower middle class and the the poverty stricken in this country. How the fuck are they supposed to figure all this shit out? But we know we have the answers and we can deliver things right to people's fucking bank accounts. We know how to do that because we did it and we won't do it. So the only thing I'm, I'm leaning on here, Timor, is that it's not specifically as means tested as some of these other programs that wind up turning these these what otherwise would be a good program into a punitive program that most people don't know how to qualify for. The problem is the rest of the industry is so fucking complex and now talking about healthcare that it feels like it's mean to, means tested to a degree because you kind of have to be well off enough to hire people to work all this shit out for you. So to me, it's like a de facto means tested idea, the way that we deliver healthcare through a third party insurer, but it's not specifically means tested unless you're talking about Medicaid. And if anybody has an issue with that, let me know if I'm not framing that correctly. That is just what I've taken away from from researching the industry and not seeing anything specific to means testing outside of Medicaid. So there we go with that. Now let's move on with some other feedback from Ace. 99, what do we got? I just want to say Ace put her pronouns in the email, which I've been meaning to add a pronoun box because I like to make sure we're not misgendering anybody. But until I do that, you know, feel free to add your pronouns if you're comfortable so we you know what to call It's actually you. really helpful because we stumble over that a lot because oftentimes you can't tell and you don't want to assume anything about somebody's gender anyway. So thank yeah. you for doing that, Ace. So Ace said, thank you so much for beginning UNFTR's deep dive into U.S. healthcare. It was exquisite and discerning as always. And then Ace has some questions and here's a little snippet. Why did we switch from fee-for-service, FFS, to managed care organizations, MCOs? And what are the implications and outcomes? MCOs seem like the largest middlemen we could possibly ask for in the social insurance space. Instead of paying member medical costs from Medicaid funds, we determined what each member will probably cost. Rates that are backed by third-party entities, more contracting outside of the public sector. Pay these determined capitation rates to the MCOs, and then the MCOs manage the care of each member, which is likely subject to many of the same pitfalls of any private insurance since they exist through so many of the same MCOs. Then, are some Medicaid-related state roles just acting as middlemen for the MCOs? You know, roles that used to serve as a vital function in ensuring member access to Medicaid, not MCO access to Medicaid. Given the discussion about small changes in legislation that have massive implications, the ever-growing transition from FFS to MCO Medicaid delivery models seems like one worth looking into. Yes, yes, yes. All of this. Ace, I love the question, the setup, and then how you followed up with one small part of this entire story that in and of itself is so complicated. And no matter which layer you peel off, this is the type of bullshit that's beneath it. But what you're what you're driving at was kind of the, I don't want to say it was the beginning of the end. 
this switch from fee for service to managed care organization. But it was a it, it was an enormous inflection point and probably solidified the direction of private insurance and profit motives within the industry. And what's interesting to me is that so this happened in, as you can imagine, in, in the 80s, just like Nixon had and LBJ had and Truman had and FDR had and uh, Teddy Roosevelt had done. Jimmy Carter had a universal health plan and the White House rolled it out and Congress killed it. So remember, toward the end of, of Jimmy Carter's tenure, he did not have a, a friendly Congress. And a lot of that actually came from Democrats that did not want to see a Southern Christian Democrat succeed because there was a lot of elitism among the Northern Democrats that were upset that they had been shut out. So again, there's a really, really great backstory that all the books that I read get into about the how Teddy Kennedy was against Carter at the time, and Teddy Kennedy wound up being the person that was advocating the most for changes in the healthcare system over time. And they sort of had this, they they had a detente towards the end of their, their respective lives. Well, Jimmy's not dead. I'm sorry. Towards the end of Teddy's life. But it was, it was actually a pretty pitched battle. And it might have been, again, one of those moments in history that had everybody been playing nicely in the sandbox on the Democratic side, they could have gotten something done during that time. I digress. At that time, going into the Reagan era, Reagan had a number of shifts in policy and then some legislation that followed up that allowed the smoothing of the transition from fee-for-service to managed care organizations. And essentially what this means is the difference between I go to the doctor, the doctor evaluates me, says, I think you need, let's say I, I want to run an EKG and do a stress test and go for this cardiac test, et cetera. And those, those tests and the visit itself, you get a bill at the end of it, you pay the bill or your insurer pays the bill. The difference between that and then insurance companies coming in and predetermining the price for these things and delivering a, a sheet of what the doctors can submit for that the insurance companies might possibly pay. So the difference was the doctors in fee-for-service were in charge of the costs for the services that they rendered. Then the insurance companies under managed care became in charge of the costs retroactively for services that were already rendered and had negotiating power to put a cap on what the doctors could actually get paid. The reason for that is because the fear in the industry at the time coming out of the 60s and the 70s was that doctors were making too much. And what's hilarious about this is that doctors aren't the problem. <laughs> they really never were the problem. Because if you look at the cost structure, it's not its not doctors in this country, right? As we talked about in the episode itself, doctors in Canada make more than they do in the States. Not the specialists like the brain surgeons and the neurosurgeons or the, the, the person that does spinal surgery all day long. Those specialists can make a lot more in the United States because of the insurance reimbursements and how that was negotiated, which was part of the lobby of the specialty medical device care companies, et cetera, et cetera. It's all related to profits and money. But the real initial fear was that, hey, if we don't come up with some sort of standard of care and payment and protocol, these doctors are just going to run away with costs and and send people to useless things that they don't that they don't need just to get paid. 
Well, the joke of that is they negotiated so hard and became such a profit and incentivized system on the other side of the equation that doctors and we refuse to look at tort reform in this fucking country, which means doctors are always fearful of getting sued, right? So they order 10 times the tests that they normally would because they know that's the only way they're going to get paid and reimbursed. They also know that that's the only way to possibly prevent some litigation down the road because medical malpractice insurance is so expensive and they have to demonstrate if they ever get sued that they did anything and everything under the sun to try and determine in a diagnostic way what was wrong with that patient sitting in front of them. That was the transition from fee-for-service to MCOs and it was the beginning of the nightmare that we find ourselves in today. So we're going to go a little bit deeper into that But the one takeaway that I wanted to offer, Ace, is that the shame of it to me is that it really wound up disrupting that patient-physician relationship, and it detracted from a physician's ability to spend time with the patient, get to know the patient, and to really manage the care in the way that they were trained because the insurance companies were now dictating a whole host of other things that they had to do to get paid. So really fucked, but you 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 hit a really important point. So now we've got RVUs. Now we've got the difference between FFS and MCO. So we're starting to get our acronym soup down, and it's going to help us as we get into the next episode. So great question, Ace. Thank you for putting that through. Now, Pethan. Cool. Pethan's back. Pethan has uh, a couple of uh, questions on... Let's see, it starts with the ACA. So Pethan said, what does the conversation around the ACA look like in a post-COVID world? Oh, such a good question. Shouldn't COVID have been the breaking point when we learned how terrible our system was? Oh, my God. How does the rural-urban divide of healthcare impact real lives and real people? I love it. I, I fucking love our audience. How does the insurance class exist? How can we untether the beast that is insurance industrial complex from the rest of our healthcare system? Max. 99. I think a route that needs to get explored next is how and why corruption among the elite corporate class, including pharma and insurance giants, trickles so seamlessly into our political system. We need to talk about campaign finance one by one. Conversation around the ACA look like in a post-COVID world. I think there's a lot of shame and a lot of regret and a lot of resignation that we are returning to norms. There was an opportunity during COVID to reevaluate the system of care, the system of reimbursement, and the fact that we have consolidated systems so much. So our population has grown, but we've reduced the number of available hospital beds in this country, which is kind of fucking madness if you think about it. But it will make sense in the context of our next episode as to why the hospital systems wound up doing that and how it ultimately is coming back to bite us in the ass when we do have a pandemic like this. Now, having said that, There weren't ever going to be enough hospital beds at the height of COVID, period, end of story. And there was no country that actually had that. Those are extraordinary circumstances, and you can't build out care for a potential pandemic like that with with in-hospital states. You can't build out an in-hospital infrastructure for something that's going to happen once every several several years or maybe a decade for a couple of reasons. One, nobody's going to pay to maintain that dormant infrastructure for that long, and two, 
care changes and our understanding of care changes and technology changes. And that's part of the good part of our healthcare system. And part of the downside is that it does require consistent capital investments into the system. So we can't just have pandemic units sitting there dormant for years and years and years to be activated all of a sudden without the human infrastructure to be able to run them and without the technological infrastructure to be able to update them throughout. So we have a real problem when it comes to to pandemic era care if we're going to enter something like that again. And I'm not suggesting that we're even out of it. So that's going to be a big problem in the future if we don't figure that out. From a policy perspective, because the real shame of the whole thing is, yes, it exposed a lot of the warts in the system, but it wasn't as though we were going to just suddenly you know, triple and quadruple the size of our capacity overnight as a result of it. Because what should have happened from a policy perspective is what most other countries did outside of the outliers like Brazil, India, and us, and that is put in proper social measures to reduce the spread and our heightened awareness and cynicism around the healthcare system and the government and the distrust around anything that anybody in healthcare says whether it's you know uh, you know Fauci and the CDC right down to your general practitioner we just don't trust the system anymore and that's a self-inflicted wound because we really, you know, in other industrialized countries, people trust the system implicitly. And that's why they have a social contract that allowed them to follow the guidelines. Stay inside, practice social distancing, double mask all the time so that we can so that we can get a handle on this thing. And then when a vaccine is rolled out, we'll all fucking do it. And then we'll all get boosted. And then and then and then and then and then that playbook, that specific playbook was written by the United States and followed by nearly every other industrialized country except those outliers I mentioned and the United States. So we just turned our back on it. And that's why so 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 many people died within such a short period of time in this country. And we're, t- we're going to talk about some of those numbers. And we are going to drill into COVID, by the way, in the next episode as well. The rural-urban divide is really interesting. We're probably not going to touch on that much. The only comment that I'll make on that, Pethan, is that the consolidation of hospital systems, actually, we are going to touch on that a little bit. So I'll just put you on to the next episode to, to get my take on that. And how does the insurance class exist? We're going to take, we're, we're going to go deeper into that as well. And uh, lastly, let's see, corruption among the elite corporate class and campaign financing. Uh, so you are giving a preview of one of the many conclusions that I'm coming to at the end of the next episode. So stay tuned. Pethan is so smart. Seriously. I mean, they're all they're all smart. They they're really only are. Only the best people. Oh, that's right. We seriously have the best unfuckers. There are a lot of unfuckers. That's for sure. We have the best unfuckers. She, remember, she requested Shirley requested you speak in Trump's voice, and I. She did. I declared it, and you didn't do it. I didn't do it at the time because I don't like to be forced. You can't tell me what to do because I'm a fantastic, fantastic oral orator. Uh, <laughs> you said oral. Sir, did you just say oral? I said oral, Matt, and I know that gets you excited, but take it easy. We're just going to fuck Ron DeSantis in the ass and prevent him from becoming anything bigger than he is. If it wasn't for me, he wouldn't be. And Mike Pence were going to hang. Uh... I don't think you could say that out loud, sir. I can say whatever I want out loud. Remember, shooting people, Fifth Avenue, it's amazing. Just don't take my documents. Where the fuck are my documents? 
Can I can I ask you a question? Who flushes documents? Oh, me. Down the toilet? Yeah, uh, of course. Instead of burning them? Yeah, I have a plumber on call. So if you have a fireplace in front of you and a toilet behind you and you have a stack of documents, where do you where would you decide to put them to, if you wanted to keep well, first, I use the documents as a toilet, and oh. then I use the toilet as the fire, and I use the fire as sustenance. I'm seriously confused. So you piss on, I burn, piss on the and docu- eat the documents? I piss on the documents. So you shit the documents out when it's all over. Is that what you're saying? So, to- No, they don't come out of me. Oh, okay. I just go on them, and then those go in the toilet. Like a birdcage. Yeah, exactly. Super interesting. Yeah. Okay. Did you see the picture of Ron DeSantis standing? He was like on stage and he, I think his suit didn't fit and he was standing like this. I, I'm, this is obviously, you can't see me, but. His arms are out like a big bro. Just like, like he's never stood before. <laughs> I'm going to Google it. While I you're- saw a tweet. It was like, just two guys standing. And he was literally just like, everyone Google it. Why does Ron DeSantis stand like Donald Trump? Is that? Um, no, it was uh- just, let me see if I can find it. Manny will cut out this dead air. Ron, and I'll re- I'll make sure to to post a link to it. Oh, standing weird at weird oh, at here it campaign is. stop. Oh my god! <laughs> so look at Like I don't understand. I, How long did he hold that pose? I have no idea. He must. It must be this the is a tight suit. suit. My man. My the, man's. He's uh, he's in campaign mode. He's eating everywhere. Yeah, he obviously. Listen, Ron, I feel you. I feel you, brother. I, I, you know, my weight can fluctuate dramatically. And, yeah, um, I don't want. I'm not here to body shame. No, no, no. But no. You, you would just no, think but look at it's the, okay to gain weight. It would be just, just get a new suit. But 99, look at the, the PSI button. pressure on that button. <laughs> if that thing comes off, it could fucking kill somebody in the audience. Yeah. Oh my God. He looks in pain. I honestly, <laughs> this picture makes me feel bad for him. I know that. Oh, little Ronnie. And who's this other man? Who's doing the skinny arm? Are you aware of what the skinny arm is? No. This is like what we do. Like you know, if you you stand like this, yeah, and we called it the skinny arm. I maybe I think everyone calls it that, but it was you know like um. It's just like a model trick, like a the no, camera makes it. I mean, probably I guess, but like it's, I know it's I know about, my daughters turn their legs in. Yeah, like, what are you it's doing? about angling your body. I mean, they're it's it's about because if you stand straight on, you know, it, it's not as flattering. So. It's just an angle. So if you stand like this, it's the skinny arm. I feel like it was very, you know, like maybe sorority invented of just being like, so if you look at any of my pictures. Can we help you, help you, help you? Wow. Were you a (laughs) tri-delt? 101 was from a movie and uh, I don't know what it is. 101 was very briefly a tri-delt. Really? Yeah. She didn't like it. Oh, she didn't? Was not for her. You don't seem like sorority chicks. Funny enough, (laughs) I was... I almost didn't go to the first college I went to because they didn't have Greek life because I was like very, I was just, that's all I wanted. I just wanted to be in a sorority so badly. You? Oh yeah. Big time. For like, real? Mm-hmm. I really, really, oh, really. I wish I knew little you. <laughs> I want, I was just, I was so excited about it. <laughs> just going to parties and, you know, getting roofied, I guess. Just kidding. That's not what I was excited <laughs> about, but God. it's obviously prevalent. And then I, uh, my second school did have Greek life and I did rush briefly, but they, I think they saw that I wasn't the right... Well, here's the real story. I rushed with my friend who didn't tell me that she'd rushed this sorority three times already and they didn't want her. <laughs> and so I got like the fucking black mark because they didn't want her. Oh. She didn't t- I was like, why wouldn't you tell me? I would have gone alone. 
And so that's, I wasn't going to shit on her, but we're not friends anymore. So I'm okay. allowed to. Okay. Okay. So they didn't want me. That seems so tragic. It was. I got, Are I, you okay? No. Okay. Um, but yeah, then I joined radio and did things that I actually aligned with me as a person. <laughs> no wonder you don't like bros. You you just didn't get accepted into the into the general bro culture, and so you've you've turned against them. Is that what I was it is? Plenty in the bro culture. Oh oh oh. Yeah. Do tell. Don't. What do you know? Tell me, bro. One of the one of the uh, rush parties. Do I you went even to, lift? No. One of the rush parties I went to, they like handed us a jug of God knows what. And there wasn't, it was like, they usually just do, it's like water. They do mm. the crystal light powder so they don't have to buy like juice and vodka, I guess. Mm. And it was like so diluted that it was basically just drinking like iced tea. And the girl handed it to me and I like chugged it, I guess. And she was like, what's your name? <laughs> I was like, are you going to accept me? Because I chugged this pink jug of God knows what. Like that was what they liked about me. <laughs> This girl can chug. That's pretty strong. Yeah. That's pretty strong. Isn't that fucked up? Yeah, it's totally <laughs> fucked up. We used to make something similar. We'd make it in a, in a big garbage can. We yeah. called it Sharkle Piss. Oh. Yeah. It was just Jungle vodka juice. and uh, like high C, like mm -hmm. blue high C. Yeah. This is the cheap version where it's it's in like a Rubbermaid bin. Yep. Yep. Bad, I bad, I only bad. took it from the girls. I wouldn't have taken it from the boys. Bad, bad, bad. Of course. No good. Yeah. Yeah. I would hope you you weren't putting any... Rohypnol in there. No, no. Sh but Sharkle Piss led to one of my stronger blackout nights. Of course. Yeah. Jungle juice is made to make you blackout. Yeah. I woke up. I think I told you this. Where I woke up in the morning with a letter from a building. Like from a sign. It was a letter from the bank that I used. <laughs> so I went to my own bank and took a <laughs> giant letter. It was like a, a person-sized letter off the side of the building and took it home with me alone I, yeah well i presumably i because i woke up by myself with a giant letter a in my room and i have just no i had no recollection of how that that a got there but when i passed my bank later that day that was missing an a i was like oh fuck me <laughs> i must have been here last night anyway let's wow. go okay here so we go. And T said, I enjoyed the episode on healthcare. What really struck me was Max's comment about taking the best from other systems around the world to create a new American system. Yes, please. Fuck the labels. Yeah. And I'm going to try to get there somewhat, but that might have to be an episode even a little further down the road. One thing I'll say is that we're going to talk just briefly about the disappearance of the public option from our discourse and why I understand that it's gone. So, you know what, Anne? I think any conclusion we're going to drive to is that the current system that we have in any way, shape, or form is just untenable. The real question is, how do we dismantle the political will to hold it together? That's the conclusion I'm beginning to arrive at because, you know, so much of the system needs reform, but there are bright lights uh, around the world that we can look at and say, oh, okay, all right, so that's why that works there. I will say, though, that culture plays a huge role in this. So if we look at, like, the French system, the French love their healthcare. The Germans pretty much love their healthcare. The Canadians sort of love their healthcare. But there's there's kind of a hierarchy out there of, of like, how tethered to it they and how attached to it that, that each one of these nations are. And it, it, it's just 
I've said it before. It's complicated. But yeah, we'll get there. Now, Nathan S. said, I was extremely impressed by how you handled the fact that unions were initially opposed to health care for all. This was something I was surprised to hear because I know you're passionate about unions and are more supportive of them than I. And you could have easily left that historical perspective out of your essay, but you wanted to keep true to the full story. Yes, even when it is not supportive of something that we believe in, if it's true, it's true. So we do try to put that out there. So thank you for recognizing that, Nathan. I appreciate you calling that out. He goes on to say, one area you missed on mentioning is the fact that the health industry fails to promote good health. Okay, so a number of unfuckers actually wrote in about preventative health and incentives to do so. But I would turn everybody's attention and remind them of the the sheer ridicule that President Obama's partner, Michelle Obama, went through when she tried to create the, what was it, uh, Let's Move, right? Let's move. Was that the name of the program? Something like that. Yeah. Kids, go outside, please. Because they were talking about the obesity epidemic as it relates to childhood diabetes and a number of other issues that crop up from basically maintaining poor diets and, and being sedentary. And we do have a problem with that, with the prior generations existing on like fucking meat alone and and working in really stressful environments And then the current generations being more sedentary and being fed really bad information about our food supply. Yeah, I feel like it's not. I don't trust my healthcare system to tell me to engage in preventative diet care when the food pyramid looks the way it does. (laughs) And everybody's in the fucking pocket of big dairy. Dairy's bad for you. Oh, it's just the worst. It's fine. I know that cheese is great. I know we love cheese. I know we love mozzarella sticks. I get it. It's bad for you. Just, it is. Like, the research all says it. So, fuck you guys. Not you unfuckers. Like, the information they're telling you is bad. Yeah. Eat, you know, cereal for breakfast. Carb load and be exhausted. I get, uh... I used to get headaches, uh, migraine headaches, I mean, routinely. So I I would get them several times a year. And it was extremely debilitating to me growing up. And then, again, so a life-changing moment for us is when we changed pediatricians. And our our pediatrician said to me, he's like, as we were talking about transitioning from uh, breast milk to formula to milk, and he said, you know, we're the only species that drinks the milk of another species, right? That your body is actually not designed to take in the hormones from cows unless you're actually trying to build a cow and just that simple the simple way that he framed that to me was just so like eye-opening that my wife and I actually stopped drinking milk in the house and I lost I'm almost embarrassed to say how much weight from cutting sugar out of my so coffee is everything to me this was the moment that I transitioned to black coffee so I took milk out of my coffee and I also took sugar out of it because I used to drink the light and sweets from Dunkin' Donuts growing up, right? And I didn't realize how much that was fucking with me. And I used to have cereal every morning, and there was always more milk left over in the bowl. I would drink milk just to have milk because it just whatever. I mean, it was how I was brought up, right? So I don't. You should see 99's face. It's in hindsight, in retrospect, it's disgusting. Unless that's the way you're raised. I'm right? not even talking about from like an animal perspective. I just I've always thought milk was gross. Yeah, and. Unless you're given that from every day of your life from the beginning, right? they tried right? to and give it to me as a kid and I was like, <laughs> Like cereal eaten dry. Like I never 
one time I had milk in my cereal because they made us try it at camp. <laughs> I was like, what is this experiment? Ew. Yeah. Yeah. Well, within a year, I had lost 40 pounds. And from that point forward, I think I've had, I could count on one hand how many migraines I had. That's 20 years ago. So I realized that it was that was dairy that was giving me migraines. Also seems like maybe it's all the sugar. I had a lot of sugar, but yeah. it was the dairy. It was 100% the dairy because I it was so because I didn't have that much sugar when I was little little okay. and I I was I battled migraines literally my entire life. My entire life. I was known in the nurse's office if I came in and I was just like bleached white, they knew and I'd lay down there until, you know, somebody could come from work and pick me up. They give you an ice pack. Uh, ice pack and an aspirin. Oh, wow. They gave you aspirin. Aspirin. I don't uh, think the nurse and ever gave anything. <laughs> Just said, here's an ice pack. What do you want me to do? So, so, but to Nathan's point though, and, and a number of other fuckers that wrote in about it, your insurance plans, uh, most insurance plans do include benefits and credits for if your employees are enrolled in gym memberships and attend certain seminars and et cetera, et cetera. It's very hard to police. It's very hard to enforce. And I can guarantee you this, that whatever credits are given out, we're all paying the price for it because they're just raising prices in other places. I did a bunch of weird like quizzes in our health insurance portal to earn points or something. And then I got a coupon and to buy a Fitbit. <laughs> so I got like I got like 30 percent off my Fitbit, which I then found out was owned by Google. And I was pretty sad. But yeah. Um, here's another piece of technology that's going to help somebody profit because there was a 60% profit margin on this item. So here's 10% off, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, and around and around and around we go. We really do. I know everybody, at this point, people probably think I'm nuts, but this idea that we can come up with a market-based solution to, to even healthcare all stems from the concepts of the Chicago School of Economics, that this type of system can fix everything. So when you think about you've got a private insurer that's partnered with for-profit hospital system. So it, we're talking about our area, right? It's actually a nonprofit system, but we're going to dig into why there's no difference between them, right? So you got a profitable hospital system, a profitable insurance company telling you that you can get money off of a private the biggest company on the, on the planet, the most profitable company, you can get, you know, 10% off their fucking, you know, device. It's market, market, market. They're all market-based solutions. But the incentive is not there for you to actually be healthy because they need you to stay in the system to get the services to ultimately pay for. It's just one big fucking mess. So, you know, again, this gets back to culture, though. So if Michelle Obama was raked across the coals, just as they raked, I think it was Bush one that brought in Schwarzenegger to be the like uh, the fitness guru for the United States, gave him like an official position too. like, I mean, it was it wasn't a real position, but they gave him like an official title. We've tried to do all of these things culturally. We don't want to fucking hear it. Americans are, are really different in that way. And. It makes public policy really difficult and different than the experiences that our other colleagues in the OECD countries face because we're just not willing to comply. If you ever need to understand the, the difference between us and basically everybody else in the world, look at the what happens when there is an ambulance coming down a busy road in Japan versus here, in Germany versus here. 
everybody stops and pulls over and clears the way and that hot and that ambulance can just go all the way to where it needs to get to. Whereas here in New York, or I'm sure out in Los Angeles or any busy place, I can tell you that we actually, we do our, here's our move. We'll pull over a little bit, but only far enough to draft the ambulance the minute it goes by us. So the ambulance actually turns into the rabbit on the dog track that's just running around things. Like everybody tries to get in behind it and go even faster. We're so fucked and so all about us. We're really a sick culture. So you tell me what- I've never done that. Really? No, I'd move- The a- ambulance goes by- I just move- And you don't pull right behind it because you know that that ambulance is going faster through traffic? No, I just move I move over and I let it go and I get back into my lane. No, you got to draft the ambulance. I've never even considered that as way. an option. What's the matter with you? I'm kind. I'm kind too, but that guy's going to get to the place that I need to get to faster than everybody else because everybody just moved over, you know what I mean? So you got you to gotta draft it. It's a game. It's like a video game. Okay. All right? It's like Frogger. Nickelodeon used to have a global day of play where they wouldn't play oh. any programming and you'd have to go outside. But it was always annoying because you're like, I want to watch TV. <laughs> it's raining. Yeah. But also I want to say to your point of like, I don't think it's fair to say that every American, and I know obviously you don't mean that, but like is non-compliant and doesn't want to do anything because there's just so many competing ideologies and strategies and diets and harmful diets and harmful workout routines and CrossFit things and all this shit and social media that makes you feel bad about your body. Mm -hmm. Like there's so many pressure points like for me when I try to like meal prep or like diet plan or not even diet plan like just plan and I my brain shuts off I can't do it I I find it so overwhelming macros and micros and all this shit I'm like I don't fucking know what this is they didn't teach me this I'm not a dietitian, and I shouldn't have to see one to be understand to understand what's good for me and we're very far removed from our food supply yeah, so I th- I know there's definitely a lot of people out there like me, especially also people who have gym anxiety. You know, I feel self-conscious going to the gym. I don't know what to do when I'm there. <laughs> and then it's like just socially awkward. And then, you know, some man tells you you're using a fucking machine wrong and, you know, you want to throw it at him. So, because it's always the men. That's a good workout. <laughs> That's true. Right? Just throwing machines at men in the gym. I love that. Like, here she comes. <laughs> but yeah, so I don't know. There's just... I've been listening to the podcast Maintenance Phase, which is about like different, you know, they'll talk about like fitness influencers or health influencers or failed diets of the past or, you know, they're just, they're like, you know, paleo and keto and all, you know, uh, they did one on Weight Watchers, which was mm. actually a really interesting and fascinating story because the woman who started it was basically, she copied a government program and then just like started her own enterprise and- market baby weight watchers has just gone under so many different their own fluctuations with because their whole thing is that they want to keep people on it to make money right so inherently it doesn't work if your diet needs to keep people hooked to make money it's not a lifestyle you know so i would check that out to learn more about kind of what you're saying and yeah well i mean so the question is but it's not a tangent because it gets back to the question so if we look at his original question, one area you missed mentioning is the fact that health industry fails to promote good health. So the industry is not incentivized to promote good health. The industry is not, right? The health industry needs you to be sick to get services. It needs you to be unhealthy 
in order to treat you so they can get paid. So that leaves the government. And every time the government tries to incentivize people to do it, we just we just look at the government like, shut the fuck up and stay out of our lives. Look at Bloomberg trying to put a, a tax on sugary drinks in New York City or get rid of super, super sized drinks in New York City. People lost their fucking minds here. I that's <laughs> they also did maintenance face an episode on Super Size Me. And they did studies after they got rid of the like supersized drink. And it was the exact same amount of soda. They were just adding more ice to the other one. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That that is well. Look at a how we fascinating I mean, episode. By the way, we we finally got it through, and I believe this isn't state. I believe this is FDA federal regulations that you have to actually post the calories of things in a public place, right? Yeah, on I think, our menus. I think that exists now. Yeah, that was a pitched battle for a fucking long time. Just like you know, making it compulsory to put GMO or non-GMO on the labels, like. We battle against this stuff every time the government says to do it because, oh, free will, independent, free market fucking spirit. And then so you want the healthcare industry itself to promote this, but they're not incentivized to do that. They have the actual opposite incentive to do it. So that's a very tricky thing and a difficult road. The one cultural aspect, though, that as a matter of fact, I heard this on a podcast recently that some other countries are dealing with. Uh, and it was Japan that actually that was mentioned was the sedentary nature of the next generation because gaming and computer work and tech work and service work is so much a part of the economy, but also a part of the the leisure life and economy there that health is going to be a big issue among their next generation as well. And you're talking about a culture that is designed the other way, completely yeah. the opposite way. So culture plays a lot into this and we can't fix mindsets and all this kind of stuff overnight. But we can we can rejigger the system to at least rid ourselves of the perverse incentives to manage better outcomes and better outcomes beget better outcomes over time and so it's it's tricky but that's why i didn't focus on it i don't necessarily have a plan to focus on it if anything i would go back to the fact that more than anything to fix the health of the population and the planet we have to address the protein industry in this country, because it really starts here. Now, is Brazil a huge problem? Yes. Have we have we exported the protein madness to Asia? A hundred percent. Is it is it becoming and continues to be a big problem in India? Absolutely. So we've exported this specialty that is killing the planet, but also worsening outcomes, healthcare outcomes for for the population around the planet too, which is very big business for the healthcare industry cardiac health all the everything that that stems from the issues that crop up from having a too rich of a protein diet all again feeds back into the healthcare industry so again you don't necessarily have to change incentives within the healthcare industry for people to lead healthier lives but we do have to curtail certain industries that are out of fucking control in order to switch over remember we said in that episode at a minimum Right now, we have we have to change our diets from 70% protein, which it is right now, to 30% protein at a minimum if we want to save the fucking planet. So if we just go back from that starting point, we have to we have to kind of like reverse engineer it. Like, hey, let's save the planet. And this is one of the things we have to do. If we make that type of protein less available and options and green options and plant-based options more available and more palatable and more... I guess, normalized and acceptable within the restaurant culture, the hospitality industry, the supermarket culture, 
these things will kind of begin to take care of themselves. We will have a better, healthier population. But don't wait for the industries to do that. That's not going to happen. That has to happen legislatively. So we have to find the right incentive for the government to be able to do that. Breach. Can I say one more thing? Yeah. Not to belabor any of the other unfuckers, too, who ask, like, the healthcare industry isn't incentivizing. Like, health is an arbitrary measurement. There is no one picture of what someone healthy looks like. Mm-hmm. Another huge part of this is America's hatred for fat people. Like America hates fat people. There's just inherent fat phobia everywhere you go. You know, you have to be thin. You have to do this. You have to do that. Otherwise, you're not worthy. At the same time, I feel like Europeans hate them more because that's one of the characteristics that they claim the most about Americans. I mean, I think the the like world those hates, lazy fat the Americans. World hates I think fat yeah, people. the world does. Yeah. And yes, we do have we have higher rates of obesity, we have higher rates of childhood obesity. Like that's true. And it's less of a product of our healthcare system and more of a product of access to foods. Like we talked about prices of foods, you know, the people who eat fast food mostly and, you know, the, that subsist on it are people who are poorer because it's all they can afford. That's right. So when we talk about, well, why isn't the healthcare industry incentivizing people to work out or whatever? There's this level of of the fat phobia, but also ableism, because there are plenty of people with disabilities who can't live the types of I quote unquote ideal lives that we have in our minds. We can't expect everybody to exercise because some people can't. We can't expect everybody to eat, quote unquote, right, because there is no one right way to eat, especially if you are in a different socioeconomic class, if you're vegan like me, if you And body have, chemistry matters, too. Yeah. If you have severe allergies, you know, there are those people who are right. allergic to everything. Mm-hmm. They just have tons of allergies and have a very limited thing of what they can eat. But I mean, fuck those people. Am I right? right yeah. But they're not eating right. And, you know, you don't deserve to you don't deserve to be thin because you can't eat right. Well, they're like, well, I can't fucking eat anything. Right. Sure. Sleep, whatever. Meditation. That's subjective. That's if you want to do that meditate that's fine i hate meditating it makes me anxious so it's just like we can't just put out these messages that you're only healthy if you're thin health is this your bmi should be x you have to do this because a lot of people can't a lot of people don't want to and both are okay so when we talk about what is the definition of healthy in our next episode just full disclosure I am going to rely on the World Health Organization metric of outcomes, which is a measure of about, I think it's 50 different inputs. But to be clear, BMI is in that, right? But it's one of 50. So we're talking about longevity, incidence of cancer, rates of uh, diabetes, all those kind of things. So all of those are washed in there. That's a more acceptable metric to me because it's enough to make that statistically uneventful, like something like BMI, right? Because I agree with you. If we just take these small, specific visual ideas of what is the picture of health, then it kind of belies the the greater good. So I like washing it among a, a range of statistics to come up with a, you know, a, a singular outcome. Plus, it's the only benchmark that we have that goes back I think about 20 years. So over time, we're beginning to see some trends developed from the WHO that can let us know 
like those statistics that you hear about other countries have better outcomes. Why do people in uh, these other industrialized nations live longer, healthier lives? Gets back to the other question that one of the unfuckers asked last week is or statements they made, which is like, why can't we focus on quality of life instead of length of life? Like we are very much into prolonging life here but really don't have an interest or an incentive to keep it a good, long, healthy life. So that's also part of the equation too. So we're going to use that metric as, quote, health, as it's benchmarked against other countries because all of the inputs are are so vastly different from, from food supply to climate to job availability to government programs and welfare so th- those are all healthcare metrics in their own way because they all contribute to what is a healthy mind and a healthy body. So really complex stuff. But so that's why I just boiled it down to I'm not going to try to come up with our own metric for for outcomes and what's a good healthy life or not. We're just going to use the WHO because it's the most readily available. Yeah. And it wouldn't be our job either. <laughs> no, but we have to work towards stuff. Right. And that's why that's what makes this. That's what takes, I think, longer in these episodes than some of the other ones is because it is so subjective that we have to kind of rally around certain points like, why can't you fix this shit? Well, it's like, okay, here are the 10,000 inputs we need to do. And here's why this one change here will fix 2,000 of those inputs. But it's just, boy, it's a big thing. Yeah. Well, if we also didn't have, you know, lobbyists and politicians tied to these things, then we might actually get, like Peason was saying, like, you know, campaign finance reform, if we actually had separation of church and state of, you know, politicians and these organizations that are supposed to make us healthier, or help us be healthier, quote unquote, then maybe we, we could believe them. They would be useful. They wouldn't be. It's just so it's to fuck you, not you, but fuck no, you. It's, uh, yeah, that, that's absolutely part of the equation. It's part of the, the social contract, cultural equation, the political equation. All these things contribute to outcomes. I feel like it's at the very core. I feel like if we had a a string board, you know, like Always Sunny style, I feel like that would be where everything was pointing. That's where a lot of Everyone is is in someone's fucking pocket and that has so many trickle down effects. (laughs) It's It's the free market, baby. Oh, so it's it's Milton Friedman. Yo, fuck Milton Friedman. (laughs) Always Milton Friedman. So he's at the top of the board Mm -hmm. and then, you know. Yep. Maybe I should illustrate this. If you give me a bunch of inputs, I can make it. All right. So T. Hector said, my big question would be, how do other countries do it? How successful are they and how do they pay for it? I believe that being universal health care. I know the medical companies have spent a fortune convincing us that it doesn't work. What is the real truth and how do we convince others that we've all been gaslit since the 40s? Good stuff. We're going to talk a little bit about that because we have to benchmark this against other countries. And there is no place in the world that thinks that they do it 100% right where everybody's just completely in love. But there are places that have better satisfaction ratings by a mile and better health outcomes. And those are the places that we have to look at to see kind of what, what's happening, what they're doing right, what, they're, what, they're, what we can borrow from them. But again, with that, those caveats that there are cultural and political differences between our countries, between these other examples, that might make the path a little stranger, longer, curvier. Anyway, but good question. And T. Hector, we're going to work that into the next episode. Ray W. said, I just listened to the latest episode and thought that in future episodes, it would be good if you distinguish between the healthcare industry and the health insurance industry, which is part of the finance industry, not healthcare. That's the one that we called out before. And I super appreciate that 
it's always good to remember whose bread is getting buttered and and where the money flows. And I would agree with that characterization, but it's in service of the healthcare industry. And that's why I included it in the GDP discussion. Good stuff. Now we have a very, very long email from Scott L. And we cut it down to just the introduction of it. But it was basically a an unfucker who copied and pasted this from their Facebook profile to illustrate the difficulties with something that a lot of us don't even think about. And this is the transition from retirement into the Medicare system. Really interesting stuff. So it's that little bridge area between. Scott said, I've been with you from the start, sent to you by best of the left. I bought you guys coffee a couple of times and have joined as a member. Thank you, Scott, for doing that. I recommend your podcast to anybody who talks to me for more than 15 minutes. You've taught me things and confirmed things I've been saying for years and gave me the detail and backgrounds to make these points more succinctly. You've made me laugh and you brought me to tears multiple times, specifically your tribute to your mother and also accounting of the 38 Native Americans who were hanged after the 1862 Dakota War. I was walking my dogs in the park when I heard this and I just stopped and cried. I... I, I left this in there because, again, self-congratulatory. But uh, these are that I really appreciate this type of feedback and that we're sticking with you. Um, so thanks for writing that in. Now on to Scott's point. I finished listening to the healthcare episode. I wanted to send you something that I posted on Facebook when I retired and had to get Cobra insurance set up for my wife and me. The attachment is long because things did not go smoothly. This experience gave me personal insight into some of the reasons why insurance is so expensive here in the U.S. So Scott, what I'll encourage you to do if you are so inclined is maybe join the Facebook group on fuckers at all and uh, introduce yourself to the group there and maybe drop that story in Facebook. So unfuckers can read the entire thing. It is too long to read here, but I did read the entire thing. Here's the upshot on fuckers. The massive amount of fuckery that Scott and his wife were subjected to just trying to align their post retirement care. So transitioning from the health insurance company through to COBRA to what will ultimately be a transition into Medicare was horrific. And the amount of costs and then negotiating that they had to go through for prescription drugs and co-pays and deductibles and out-of-pocket that would was theoretically going to be covered by COBRA that they just couldn't align with because of deadlines and people that were screwing things up along the way and being thrown around from voicemail to press this automated feature here was was harrowing and it just it was a really helpful illustration of how everywhere along the line there's nothing that works 100% smoothly unless you get into the core parts of Medicare in which case for the most part it's probably the best third party delivery system of reimbursements on the planet Hold that thought until next time. I wish they named Medicare and Medicaid differently because they, they're they the same name and it's confusing. <laughs> Isn't it? The first time you hear it, you're like, what? I, I've heard them for so long, so maybe not. But It's like if it was like health insurance and health insurance. <laughs> like, I'm supposed to know the difference between insurance and insurance. <laughs> Those are just my thoughts. That's fair. Okay. Sorry. That's fine. So Joey said, hey, Max, 99, and Manny, I'm a first-year medical resident who just graduated medical school. Hey, Joey. Congrats. 
In my first few months, I can't tell you how many times I couldn't put a patient on the best possible guideline-directed therapy for a medical condition or saw patients receive different inferior treatments based on insurance and what their ability was to pay. Anecdotally, my mom also has issues each year getting her guideline-directed breast MRI for her history of cancer and has to fight insurance every year for approval. Mm. Big pharma, insurance, and private equity and hospital admins are not only killing the medical industry and driving doctors and nurses out of the profession, but they are directly leading to the deaths of patients. I don't know what else to say other than that's fucking harrowing. There's somebody looking at it, fresh eyes. That's really good perspective. Yeah, I mean, if you think about, like, the paper trails of things as a woman, maybe TMI, but like when women want to get breast reductions, they have to have like fucking years of telling their doctor their back hurts. And it's like, why can't you just get one if you want one? <laughs> you know, it's the same right. type of thing. And that's usually like elective surgery, this type of thing. It's like, don't you want to make sure people don't have cancer again? Like, that's so sad. <laughs> so upsetting. I just saw. Emma Bigland is running Majority Report right now for the week. I think Sam is out, and she just had an interview with an author. I'm gonna I'm gonna link it actually in the next show, talking about the the fuckery of the pharma industry, and how tied they are to the, the medical journals. Mm. It was really eye opening. I'd never read this this person's work before, but that's another good area to look at of how just again the moneyed influence coming in from outside, and then supposedly these these very objective third-party media outlets, you know, weighing in on it, these peer-reviewed journals, but then they're also in the tank. And it's really interesting how they're in the tank and why their financial model depends upon the largesse of the pharmaceutical industry and the insurance industry. So really interesting stuff. So I'll link that maybe in the next one because I think I'm going to play a clip from that interview uh, with Emma. Good stuff. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so Joey, uh, congrats. Thank you for being in the fray, by the way, and being a medical professional. It's, it's super important that the next generation comes in with fresh eyes to be able to tell us about this. We have a we need doc doc fuckers, uh, unfucking doctors, doc doc med fuckers. Med fuckers, right? Um, all right, let's have a think on it. Let us know. Unfucker unfuckers. MD, unfuckers MD. Oh, I like that. Surgeons generals. <laughs> Okay. See Everett Coop on fuckers. He's still my favorite guy. That fucking chin strap. It's like, look, we put an Amish guy in charge of everything. <laughs> Sorry. Stephen J. One of the things that the healthcare episode really made me think about, especially when it comes to having the employer be in charge of picking your health plan, is one, what happens when people lose employment due to an economic downturn or something like a pandemic that's beyond their control? Mm. And two, the other pressure point about employer-based healthcare is what if your employer is pretty much a fucking asshole? 99, you want to take the second point? Yeah, so basically <laughs> you're screwed. And, you know, you have to, you you have a, an eye plan that only gives you fucking glasses every other year, Max. Why is that? Yeah, this guy, this guy you work for, it must be a fucking prick. I know. So the madness of this being an employer-based system, there's no winners. As an employer... It is an enormous fucking pain point and drain. And the the fact that our contribution is is pre-tax is fucking meaningless to me. It is just a fucking burden. And it also makes a small company like ours really like uncompetitive in the market against bigger players that can subsidize healthcare all in. 
So it creates this other tiered system of competition within our industry. Like no matter how good we try to be, it's not 100% coverage. So fuck it. It's just never going to be good enough. Plus, the rates, the increases that get flushed through to us every year. Although this is interesting. So the first two years when Obamacare came into play, there is a rule. It's a, it's this capitation payment rule. Uh, and I forget the acronym for it, but we're going to probably address that at some point as well. Uh, where health insurance providers, 80% of what they paid had to go to medical care. So it had to be in terms of reimbursements. We actually got money back in the first two years that the ACA was in existence because of that one rule change. Then the insurance companies figured out how to include a whole bunch of non-medical resources as medical and just lied and got away with it. And so we've never seen those those rebates again because they just they started including overhead in medical care. We're just amazing stuff. That being said, from that point forward, this is how many years ago? I mean, this is so many years ago. From that point forward, we have sustained double digit in increases to the costs, to our costs as the employer uh, to provide at least partial medical care for people and my employees as well. So it's horrible as as the employer. And it never used to be this way in the 80s. It was almost easy to subsidize 100% of healthcare. Now it's almost impossible for me to cover like a third of it. And it makes us uncompetitive in the marketplace. And it's something that we have to strive to do better and do better and do better at. That's why there's so many other soft initiatives to maintain work-life balance with employees, which includes paying people more, which includes trying to give more time off, trying to include more mental health days and all those kind of things. But when it comes down to it, when somebody's sick and they need fucking care and they've got this enormous deductible hanging out there, it's just all those other soft metrics don't need shit. If you can't get fucking eyeglasses every year and you got a deductible that's like $5,000. I mean, it's frustrating for me. It's more frustrating for the people that uh, have to exist in that. And that's why we try to do so many other things until we can get to the point to afford, you know, better control. But Nobody should have this pressure. This is the one, it's the stupidest part of, of the system is that it developed in this way. And it's because of those tax loopholes we talked about in 1954 that it actually came came to fruition. The part about having an employer as an asshole uh, sucks. So so Stephen gives a, a longer example about that. And I can tell you, it, Stephen's employer sounds like a real fucking asshole. And I don't know what to say about it. On a related note, this came in from our Scottish friend, and I wanted to include it here because it relates to what Stephen was saying and some others. said, I love the episode on healthcare. Got me thinking about why employers aren't banging down the door to get rid of private insurance. Sure, surely it's a massive potential cost savings. Yes, it is. Whoa, 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 whoa. This doesn't sound like our Scottish friend. Or is it the threat of employees leaving? Being able to retain more easily the reason why so many don't want to change the current system. How'd that go? I think Bobby McDee is going to fucking no, fly I, here. No, I liked like, it. E- easy. I'm Irish and I hated that. You sounded like Trek. Not sure if this is in line with the ideas and questions you're looking for for the show, but thought I'd throw it out there because it's what came to mind for me as someone who came from a more civilized country that looks after its people. I'm only half joking. The looks of confusion I get from my friends and family when I try to explain any aspect of the insurance system would be funny if the system wasn't so actively killing people. I think it went like a little I know, British it was bad, and Irish. Right? I don't know where yeah. I was going at the end. I'm only half joking. <laughs> the looks of like confusion Rango. I get 
from friends and family when I try to explain any aspect of the insurance system would be funny if the system wasn't actively killing people. So that's one of my favorite things, just talking to people from outside of the states when they really they haven't really thought deeply about our healthcare system or people that are trying to explain it from here to uh, people outside of the United States about just how fucked up we are. And, and the blank look that we give people when they're like, well, what happens when you lose your job? And you're like, um, you have to buy it? <laughs> they're like, what? Have you seen those like men on the street interviews with people in different countries where they're like, how much do you think it costs to have a baby in America? <laughs> they're like, I don't know, nothing? And they're like, $50,000. You're like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? And they're like, yeah, you get charged, whatever. Yeah. Even, do you remember in the beginning of Matilda? when Danny DeVito is complaining that they charged him for a bar of soap for the wife showering when she was in the hospital oh my God, with uh, Matilda. That's great. Yeah, it's yeah, always been there. Yeah, he's got a point. That's bad. The only the only good thing he ever said. Oh. Well, in that movie. In that movie. Yeah. Oh, God, we love that movie. You're a worm word start acting like what? Okay, am I going now? Uh, Yeah. Okay. So we have this email from Jeff G. Which Buckle up, everybody. <laughs> we're not 100% sure of Jeff's core intent. So Jeff, you'll have to clarify. I'm going to approach it how I read it, and then maybe Max can add some color on how sure. he read it. And yeah, that's that's about it. So yeah. Jeff said, in post-show musings, one thread that ran strong through your dead-on critique of Big Pharma was, not that I'm an anti-vaxxer. I invite you to reflect on your zeal making that point. My own take as someone in public life who needs to think about how I'm being perceived is that there's some fear being linked to some truly loony view circulating, like Bill Gates inserting microchips. A big problem in this whole fight, in my opinion, is that the loonies have made most of us nervous, maybe frightened about thinking openly about other vaccine challengers who are demonstrably more learned, serious, and responsible. And then a little further down the email, to your very valid point about the way the media and system demeans natural remedies and prevention, I find the almost complete absence in the public health messaging of any suggestion for strengthening immune systems to be typical and very significant. Another exhibit for the argument that government agencies and policymakers really like helping big pharma. And then towards the end, let me just repeat that it might have value to slow down the quote, not that I'm an anti-vaxxer impulse and consider ways that an authoritarian approach to vaccinations including mandates and passports, along with the tens of billions of dollars in profit that have flowed to Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J through the process, might in fact comport exactly with your general, in my view, accurate assessment of Big Pharma and its power over the agencies mandated to regulate it. So yeah. I read this email and I assumed Jeff was someone who questions vaccines in, in a healthy way, which is fine, now, we should say Jeff is double vaxxed and boosted. Yes. Yeah, so right? Jeff did get COVID vaccinated. This is how I took it. Jeff is saying, stop railing on anti-vaxxers because their viewpoints might align more with what you're saying and your critique of big pharma. So I disagree. <laughs> I think if you are upset, and the royal you, not just you, Jeff, if you're upset that we say I'm not an anti-vaxxer and we don't like anti-vaxxers. I think you need to question why you call yourself an anti-vaxxer. You're obviously not against vaccines. You got the COVID vaccination. Maybe you were, maybe you were mandated to, to do it by work. There were plenty of people who quit or got fired and they stuck to their, their principles. So 
you know, there's always quote unquote a choice. I just, I'm not personally going to apologize or amend any statements. I don't like anti-vaxxers. I think that they, they poison the system. I think that they're responsible for a lot of terrible misinformation. I think that they refuse, and obviously I'm being general, but they refuse to look at actual research and continue to cite long fucking debunked arguments and theories. Like, and I get it. You don't want to put a lot of trust in Fauci. He's just a guy. Fine. Don't make him a deity. That's okay. Question things. It's good. It's healthy to question. You know, the do your own research thing is sort of, I question things. I always think about them and I always look at different resources. I'm like always checking to make sure there isn't something I'm missing. And, you know, without going on the dark web for it, obviously. So yes, did Pfizer, did Johnson & Johnson, did Moderna profit? Of course they did, because that's fucking big pharma in a nutshell. And there did, were issues with the J&J vaccine. Yeah. And I mean, some of them were, you know, like more women die of blood clots during their period than they were dying of, you know, blood clots from Johnson Johnson. So another story, but they were never not going to make money. This isn't a pandemic situation. Pfizer didn't create the coronavirus or this novel coronavirus so they could make money. I mean, I just I don't think the two things are comparable. Just like I was saying last time, we could dislike the mechanisms, but we can be okay with what the outcome is. I'm not sucking Pfizer's dick, but I'm very grateful that I'm double vaxxed and double boosted because I had COVID, like I said last week or whenever, and it was pretty fucking rough. I was real, I was down for a week, but who knows how much worse it would have been if I wasn't had some antibodies. So just maybe don't call yourself an anti-vaxxer if you're not. And Again, not going to apologize. And also, anti-vaxxers are not a marginalized population. We can't compare unvaccinated people to uh, people with HIV or, quote, the gays or, you know, this is not the same thing. Being gay is not a choice. Having HIV is not a choice. Getting vaccinated is, is a choice. And the only reason people are mad at you is because you're too... I'm going to say selfish and I'm okay with that. Maybe people will come for me. That's fine. Too selfish to do something so minimal that would help a great population of people. Everybody knows someone who died of COVID, even if it's two degrees of separation. You know, thank God I don't have any immediate friends who are family members. But, you know, my best friend has a, a close family friend who died. Everyone knows somebody and we could have prevented this so much earlier. And then the masks thing. I mean... Why shouldn't we be able to mandate that you can't come here when you could anywhere if you're not vaccinated? It's just, I don't know, man. Obviously, this is definitely one of my trigger points as we talked about last week. And like I said, I'm okay if you want to question it, if you want to learn more, if you want to read the peer review studies, if you want to talk to your doctor, if you want to get a second opinion, do all of that. That's great. And you should do that. That's important. Full disclosure, I'm currently potentially going to start taking a new medication And I'm talking to my psychiatrist. I'm talking to my therapist about it. I'm going to talk to my general practitioner about it. I'm going to look at all of these different resources and see how it interacts with other things because that's what I want to do. It's not that I'm afraid to take it. I just want to make sure it's the right thing for my body. So I'll I'll jump off my soapbox now. But So I, I had a lighter, gentler reading of this initially 
came a little bit closer to where 99 is, but still probably have a more uh, dialed back um, interpretation of where Jeff is going with this. So if we started with his beginning statement, one thread that ran strong is your, not that I'm an anti-vaxxer, reflect on your zeal at making that point. My own take is that there's some fear of being linked to some loony views circulating. Okay, so I think what this is essentially saying at its core is the more you have to disclaim, not that I'm an anti-vaxxer, the more power that takes away from people who question authority of all types. I don't look at this just through the prism of of just health information and vaccinations. I look at this as questioning authority. There is so much more evidence over time that authoritative sources that have moneyed interests have lied to the general public for a long time until they were finally exposed and there and it was reversed. So part of our human right and I think natural right as citizens in this country, thankfully, is the idea of questioning authority. Now, I'm going to put a pin in that for one second. So I get that you don't want to be, you know, that cl claiming you're an anti-vaxxer can steal some power away from people questioning authority generally. As somebody who considers himself an anti-over-vaxxer and prescriber, it's been a difficult transition for me to have some of my beliefs thrown into the complete anti-vax camp because I do believe that the increase in the sheer volume but incidence of childhood ailments might also be as a result of our conventional care in this country. Like I was just quickly looking up the number of, because I wanted to have the number right. So there are 34 approved vaccines federally and more within the state that I live in for children up to the age of 18. And I would never consider giving my kids 34 distinct vaccines in their bodies before 18 years old, nor do I believe that they should be on erythromycin seven times a year, nor do I believe that they should just, you know, default to getting any sort of antibiotic or prescription or go on some sort of medication until we actually understand more the root causes of some of the things that that was my that was my perspective as a father. And I and I stand by that today. And somebody who raised his hand very quickly to get himself and his children vaccinated because there was a deadly fucking pandemic spreading around. And I did believe that the government here, along with the government of every other fucking country in the world, stood by the efficacy of this vaccine. And I do believe that vaccines work to eliminate diseases that are highly infectious and can actually be eliminated to the point where they are eradicated. And I think that that has happened. Not anymore. They're all coming back. They're all coming back. Yeah. And and again, do I want measles to come back or polio to come back or any of that stuff? No. Do, does want rubella to come back, though. You? Oh, how did you know? I could just see it in your eyes. I'm a big rubella fan. Big rubella fan. So, you know, so when presented with, so I guess if we hadn't done so much work in our previous lives in journalism about the things that were the unintended consequences of over-medicating children, that's not to say medicating children, that we have to allow for some nuance in this discussion that you can be a fan of trying to naturally build an immune system and believe that in many and certainly critical cases, conventional medicine works. 
So you can believe all of these things and that if you are an anti-overvaxxer, it doesn't mean you're an anti-vaxxer. But I do think that we do have to distinguish between people that in that live in a society that will not take anything supposedly and claim themselves to be an anti-vaxxer who will then also go on fucking heart medication or take, you know, diabetes medication or take a fucking, let me ask you, what's in an Advil? Mm-hmm. What is ibuprofen? Where does that come from? Ibuprofen. How is it sourced? Did I say it wrong? Yeah. Ibuprofen? It's fin. Ibuprofen? Ibuprofen. Ibuprofen. Not yeah. friend? No. So acetaminophen. <laughs> yeah, there you go. How'd I do? Good. Where does that come from? Trees. How was that sourced? You, you pick it off the tree. Right. It's not an app. It's not a fucking apple, right? So in all of these things, like we, we, the people who claim to be smarter than scientists are stupid. Mm-hmm. And anybody that claims to be a thousand percent against everything is also not smart. And it's the same discussion that we're having related to the healthcare system in the United States in these episodes. Canada doesn't have it a hundred percent right on fuckers. Neither does Germany, neither does France, because guess what? People die. What? People make mistakes in diagnosing people in any system. This is art and science, and it will always fucking be that way, right? But that's the same thing here is that, yes, we have to trust the science to a degree, and we should also challenge it. That example that I gave you about Emma uh, talking to the author who basically exposed that the New England Journal of Medicine knew that there was a particular drug that was actually killing people and they continued to stand by their peer-reviewed research because the pharmaceutical company who paid for the research and the distribution of the copies of the journal article eliminated anybody that had an adverse reaction to the drug from the study. Oh, good. And they knew it and they kept publishing it and they stood by it. And they estimated that an additional 50,000 people died as a result of the publication of that article and not them putting it out into the universe that it was wrong. So that's what I'm talking about. Like, if you're one of those people that throws up their hands and is like, you know what? I don't want any of this shit because you always fucking lie. It's kind of hard to take away from that person's argument to a degree. But if we wind up in the camp of the government is always right, you're wrong. If you wind up in the camp of the government is always wrong, you're wrong. There are no fucking absolutes in this world, especially when it comes to science and healthcare. It just doesn't exist. So again, I had a more, we'll say, we'll call it generous reading of this, where I understand. I found this very similar to the, to the discussion that we had about Nathan S's comments about corporatism, right? Like it, it can't all be bad, right? That we can't, we're not all doing terrible things, and there are certain ideas within the conservative. Yeah, yes, I can see that view, and 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 I think what Nathan was responding to was basically like the, all white men are just are just shitty, right? So we're having these same nuanced arguments where, you know, anti-vaxxers, I get it, it, that you think that it steals power from the anti-vaxxers, but I think it's important to make the distinction that we are castigating anti-vaxxers who are completely against all things medical. That's what it's called. It's called anti for a reason. There's like... You're making an absolute. So right. don't call yourself anti-vaxxer. Like, but Max also really allow go for the around. nuance. Well, yeah. Right. In the discussion that I also don't believe everything that I hear from the government or even the CDC, which has reverse course or the FDA, which has reverse course or the EPA, which has reverse course on a number of ideas and issues. And so, yes, it's all complicated and nuanced. But he says something in his email like, you know, people who challenge this stuff 
include universally respected and relevant fields who become pariahs and lose platforms and careers the second they spoke up, you know, like Galileo, anyone like let's let's be clear here that this is not, you know, Galileo. This isn't this isn't flat earth versus anything else. This is like experience in other countries, the rest of the planet going through everything at the exact same time, people in real time achieving better outcomes and lower mortality rates than us and us still bucking the science and protocols that came from our own country. So if there was any way to lean throughout this crisis, it would have been leaning towards what we actually saw was fucking working, right? Like, I get it that you want to question stuff, but if you had to lean in one camp or the other at the ultimate moment of crisis and breakdown of society, I'm going to lean towards the authoritative resources that are being pretty transparent about the science and the results. Yeah. What? What? Why does any one person think they know better than a bunch of people who do this for a living? You are not smarter than them. And then, and then also, in that 99, way at least. here's what, and I continue to follow the reporting. Here's the stuff, though, that makes people nuts and makes them fucking question everything is like hiding the origin story around the, was it born in a lab? And now if you watch the, if you look at the intercept reporting over time, it's coming more and more clear that that potential exists way more than it didn't. Right. Yeah. But why obfuscate that? Why bury that? Why put it under the rug when it's a burning question? And this is the kind of that's that's where the politics of this shit begins to really bother me is when they deliberately try to hide stuff because they're so afraid of how we're going to respond to it. Like when in a moment of crisis like that, it's everything on the fucking table. Be honest all the time. Period. Of course. Right. I, yeah, I, I get it. I get it. Because you're just fueling the fire. I get the I get the the distrust, obviously, like, you know, the government has done many fucking bad things. You heard it here first. I get that. It's just come on. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah. You know, like every year. What is there? Every year there's a case of uh, parents being prosecuted because their child died because they had the flu and they didn't do anything. It's like how many how many more children have to die? <laughs> but, you know, that type of thing. Mm. That's as statistically irrelevant as your polio analysis. How? I'm talking about mindset. This is obviously I'm not in a, an anti-vaxxer's head. Right. If I'm an anti-vaxxer and I read about a mother or a father. An anti, not, anti-over-vaxxer. No, I'm saying if I'm an anti-vaxxer okay. and I read about and I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to get my kids vaccinated. I don't believe in it. And I read that someone that multiple there have been multiple kids have died because they didn't get the proper care. Plenty of people don't get the flu vaccine. They get the flu and they don't die. Right. But because they were giving them like, you know, putting fucking broccoli on their feet or whatever weird like shit people come up with, that would be enough for me to be like, hey, maybe I'm going to get my kid vaccinated. I don't like your analogy, though. I don't like where you're where I don't like where you're going with it as a parent. I just it, it's nonsensical to me, that argument. That if you saw someone else's child die, you wouldn't want your that child to die? I would run die? out and get my get the flu vaccine for my child when the flu vaccine misses as often as it does. And I'm just going to create and I'm not going to allow them to have the natural ability to fight off the flu over over time. I'm, I just fall in a different camp than that. Do I want them to get polio? No. Do I want them to build natural resistance to colds and flus? Yeah, I do. I just we fundamentally disagree on the science. What you think that a, a vaccine 
is going to then prevent that every single year and that there's not going to be some we, we see what happens when new strains break out all the time. Yeah, but they're constantly doing research to iterate just like they will do with the COVID va- will do and have done with the COVID vaccine. But, but superbugs are real now as a result of us creating this in the general population for things that have never increased mortality rates unless it is in the in, in the aged population. Kids have to develop a natural resistance. They have to. It's essential. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. And I'm certainly going to give them Tylenol to bring their fever down. And I'm certainly going to give them ibuprofen, not friend, but Finn, if they have a headache. And I'm not going to let them sit there and suffer if there's something that I can do to minimize their suffering and their pain. And also, I want them to build up a natural immunity. I want them to go outdoors and I want them to experience the world it's and do all those finite, things. It's not though. It's not like you get the flu vaccine, you have no immunity. But I'm not going to read that somebody in, in Dubuque, a child died from the flu and their parents didn't do anything. Like to me, that's there's some sort of other gross negligence that's going on there other than not giving them a vaccine. And that's what you're suggesting well, is the that vaccine if I saw somewhere care. in the world the follow-up care okay we can talk about that but that's that doesn't flu that's okay it's all but it's all it's all together it's anti-vaxxer all isn't somebody that's just against like medical interventions and, and you're over taking the counter it personally stuff. though i'm not talking about you no i want to make sure that we're not conflating right so but like I'll, i'd say a big percentage of anti-vaxxers do feel that way i i don't think that that's necessarily the case. I think there's the big percentage of the anti-vaxxer. The the anti-vaxxers that you're talking about are the same people that are on that are on welfare and like voting against their own interests and telling everybody like the social security recipient who who takes Medicare and and was in the VA system for for their for their lives that fights against government entitlements and has no fucking idea what they're talking about. Like those people are, I, I can't help. The anti-vaxxers that won't then like take Tamiflu or, or do something else to like mitigate how somebody feels or a child feels during that. Those, you can't talk to those people. But are there anti-vaxxers? Are there normal people that are just like, I think that this has gone overboard. Are there people like me that's just but like- But you're not an anti-vaxxer. And that's what I'm saying. But I'm an anti-over-vaxxer. That's not, a same, that's not the same thing. But we're all put into the same category. I'm not. I don't agree with your lens, which you but know. Your specific example of the flu, and I see a child dies from the flu and then I won't give them the vaccine, makes me an anti-vaxxer. It doesn't. It I'm doesn't. I'm saying that, I'm, but I'm talking about my perspective. If I'm that person, that would be enough for me. Fine, but then you, but you can't then paint everybody who doesn't do that with the same brush, is what I'm saying. I didn't say that. I was saying... That would be enough for me. But you presented it like, well, how can you see that and then not do that? Well, I do sort of feel that way. But, and I'm telling you exactly why I wouldn't rush to do that. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to mitigate the pain that comes from having that. But flu and colds are a part of our lives and they don't necessarily kill people unless they have underlying symptoms when you are old. If there's if you're a child and you die from that, that is mishandling of care, but it is not an absence of a proactive vaccine. That's my point. I mean, fine, but I, I think it's I don't think there's a natural conclusion because you have your food point and I have mine. Where okay. I don't think you every should... baby, every child, every human should get the flu vaccine every single year from birth till forever in your in your mind. I don't know if it's approved for babies. I don't know what the age, you know, ramifications are on that. If it's available, I think you should get it. I get mine. The year I didn't get it, I got the fucking flu. 
And obviously that's completely, that is my, that's circumstantial. It's anecdotal. I can't, yeah, I'm aware of that. But for me, I feel better when I have it. I like having it. I've never experienced any adverse reactions. No one in my family has. Again, completely anecdotal, but that's where I fall on it. My primary care physician told me that he's probably given as many people the flu from the flu shot as as saved people from it. Well, I've, he's a doctor. And so, again, I, we can't go there with the anecdotal stuff, right? Because that I don't live and breathe by that anecdote because I also know that he voted for Trump. Like, who cares? Like, but he's a doctor. He's a medical doctor. I'm not. There are a lot of people who are medical doctors who shouldn't be, like we talked about last week, too. This guy's great. He's wonderful. But he has his worldview on certain things and and has, you know, has had patients that never had the flu, came in for the flu vaccine for the first time and and then wound up, wound up with the flu. He's like, I don't know. You know, we don't know. I'd have to do a, you know, a complete nationwide full population statistical analysis to understand if that's even fucking possible. If you're putting a live virus into somebody, I suppose it is. If you're putting a dead virus into somebody, it's actually not theoretically possible. But again, there we go. That's the end of my scientific knowledge of any of this stuff, which is why I don't want to argue it and won't stand firmly one way or the other, except to say that I don't want to steal power from people that question authority. And I took a more generous view of this email than maybe you did. But I'm also way more in your camp than it sounds like I am right now by arguing it. No, I understand. I just, it's fine to question things. Everybody should have a healthy questioning and distrust of the mechanisms of power because historically they're not on our side. I am there. But don't call yourself, it's like calling yourself like, um, you're like, well, yeah, you know, I'm homophobic, but like, that should be fine. <laughs> like, what? what is It's just my, it, like, just don't call yourself the bad thing. Right. If you are not an anti-vaxxer, don't call yourself an anti-vaxxer. I don't know what you want from me, you right. know? Just be, even an anti-over-vaxxer, I feel like, I think you should retire that. Like, I think it also, I think that gives you, gives people more credence to be like, mm, you're just, mm, it's like being like, I'm moderate. And you're like, no, you're conservative. You don't want to say it. That, <laughs> just say like, yeah, I believe in, I believe in science. I believe in vaccines, but I question some of it. And that's where it should end. Anti-vaxxers, homophobes, turfs, fuck all of you. <laughs> Like, I'm not going to apologize for disliking no, a community of people who are against human fundamental rights and health. Shouldn't. Sorry. Just looking to find the balance to make sure that we understand that that authority should and can be questioned of at all course. times. At all times. Look at the fucking Holocaust. That was authority. <laughs> I'm serious. Of course I'm going to question authority. Which the Native American Holocaust? Any of them. There were more? Oh, you're not talking about the listen. Mel Gibson said that never happened. Did you know that Mel Gibson is the type of Catholic who doesn't believe in Vatican II? I didn't know that, Sugar Tits. Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, isn't that crazy? Or not crazy? I'm trying not to say crazy. I apologize. Isn't that wild? I mean, it makes everybody knows sense. that Sugar Tits is a thing with Mel Gibson, yes. and that I'm not just calling 99 Sugar Tits, yes, right? Yes, I think so. At least I knew. Sugar Tits. So I was not um, affected by it. <laughs> okay. But isn't that weird? It'd be great if you just rolled right over it. Yeah. It's like, okay. <laughs> it wasn't a thing. Like, I have mm-hmm. my diary and I'm like, Max, I should ask me again. <laughs> Three times you're out. But yeah. So that's why the Passion of the Christ was like that. Oh, dear. Because he hates Jews. Yes. 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 Yes, he does. And comes by it honestly. His father is a <laughs> yeah, there's, fervent. There's a name for it. Let me find it. Uh, I think it's called Jew hater. People who hate Vatican too. Hmm. Wait, is that the sequel? Hmm? 
what the fuck is it called? While you look that up? Um, sedivacantism? Oh, sedivacantism? I believe so. Oh, let me let me look at it. I'll pronounce it right. Sedivacantism. <laughs> it has the word like vaticantism. Vaticantism? Avada Kedavra. Um, He's not one of those abracadabras. All right, let's move on. No, I need to Fuck find Mel the Gibson. name. You I look Googled for that and I'm going to go Sev- to the next email. Sedevacarism Mel Gobsob. Sedevacantist. You're killing me. I'm showing Max. Sedevacantist. You know what's so funny about that? What? Is that I hear, I hear that word mm-hmm. in such a Brooklyn Borscht Belt kind of way. Sedevacantist. Sedevacantism. Yeah. He's one of those Sedevacantisms. Well, you're being, now you're being anti Semitic. I know. <laughs> okay. I have a pass because you're here. Mm. No? Doesn't work that way? I don't think so. All right. Let's go to general emails. Fran E. Whew. I was already complaining that Leonard Leo was awful last time I emailed you. Yes, you did. But I bet $1.6 billion makes him worse. Hey, unfuckers, um, this is a really big fucking deal. The process of the donation itself was pretty circuitous and pretty underhanded, but everybody it, everybody kind of understood what it was. So a billionaire transferred all of the stock rights of, of his company to Leonard Leo's Federalist Society organization, and then the company was bought for $1.6 billion, and so they you know, were the recipient of all that money. I mean, just unfucking believable. If the Federalist Society was powerful before, I mean, imagine being fucking supercharged with one and a half billion dollars. This is bad, bad fucking news, and just speaks to the larger issue of of money and these dark money groups. And the, by the way, the way that they tried to hide the the money returning uh, through uh, through the equity channels was was ridiculous because people were going to find out anyway. You can't just, su- you know, suddenly have $1.6 billion and people not trace it back to how it happened. But anyway, I appreciate you writing in about it, Fran. I'm trying to figure out how best to tackle. Uh, I guess it's going to be within the contest of a, of a SCOTUS episode. But, you know, Leonard Leo is just now, I mean, he's like the, he's like the 10th member of the court, essentially. So big stuff there. Jeremy H. said, Max in 99, listen to the whole catalog and love the show. Holy shit. That's huge. But I really need to explain for me how you support the argument that the entire political spectrum in the West has shifted to the right. Other pundits such as, oh boy, other pundits such as Jordan Peterson (laughs) claim that the political spectrum is shifting to the left. I get my right and my left mixed up with all the doublespeak and went back to listen to the episode on isms as a refresher. I came across this idea from Peterson and others that tyranny always stems from socialism. Okay. (laughs) Is this because the government must take power in order to regulate equality and that absolute power corrupts absolutely so these powerful socialist governments inevitably descend into tyranny? Jeremy. Wow. Jeremy. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, yeah. Please stop listening to Jordan Peterson. A bad person. A bad, bad person with Bad, bad ideas. Well, it's Please almost like stop. I don't want to, I don't want to like go after these specific points because it gives almost credence to this idea. Yeah, it's because, just fundamentally wrong. Right. So, 
be, just because somebody, just because this this fame seeking person said tyranny always stems from socialism. Uh, so that's such a fundamentally fucked up and wrong statement that it's hard to battle against. So like socialism is a modern construct. Let's start there. Socialism exists first as an ideology and a theory from the writings of Marx and Engels. Again, a theory. So that is less than 200 years old. Socialism in practice, the way that they theorized it, has never actually come to fruition. So what Venezuela has, what Sweden has, what actually maybe Cuba is probably the closest thing, but there are tyrannical elements to it because it was founded by a dictator. Socialism didn't spawn the dictator. The dictator actually implemented a socialist style government. But the idea that tyranny that is always spawned from socialism, it, it's hard for me to argue against any of the other suppositions that surround that foundational statement because the foundation of that statement is so fucking wrong. It's as though tyranny never existed prior to Marx writing about socialism for the first time or us trying to establish socialism in certain countries in the 1900s, because again, socialism didn't even exist at the writing at the time of Marx writing. Socialism in certain forms theoretically began to emerge and nowhere in the world more so than the United States in the 1920s. The idea of it and a party surrounding it and real momentum. So if you go back and look at the history of socialism and you look at, you know, you look at the work of Dewey or Debs. These, this was a time when socialism was at its at its peak and at its hottest here in the United States. And from here, it it really sparked a revolution in the Western world. And of course, you have to look at the Bolsheviks in in Russia. That was perverted. So so the ideas of Lenin and Trotsky, let's say, early on were probably the closest to what was theorized through revolutionary means by Marx and Engels, but but still different from it. What wound up going into practice, they never even had an opportunity to try to achieve a socialist state because they, they put in practice a tyrannical state first and foremost and this form of communism that didn't resemble socialism or communism at all. So to even call those communist states or, or, or derivative of socialism is really kind of a tragedy and it's one of the ultimate misnomers. No matter how we reflect on these periods, they're modern. So, in fact, they're really a hundred years old. So, throughout the entirety of human history, Jordan Peterson is, is surmising that tyranny, that Genghis Khan was the result of fucking socialism, right? That, you know, Alexander the Great was born and birthed out of a socialist structure that didn't fucking exist. So it's very hard for me to comment on this stuff when it is so utterly ahistorical. And all you have to do is really look at the rest of the of Peterson's so-called canon to try to distinguish an underlying philosophy that doesn't somehow relate to him making headlines. And you'll begin to understand he's a charlatan of the highest degree. 
And the person that wrote the, I think, the definitive piece on him is Nathan J. Robinson. If you want to go back and look at everything that's wrong with Jordan Peterson's worldview, read Nathan J. Robinson's piece on him, and it is fucking spectacular. If I was Jordan Peterson and I read that, I would fucking kill myself. (laughs) Wow. Anyway. I will link that, and I also am going to link Maintenance Phase did a two-part series on him. So... I I lost my train of thought because I was just thinking about how you can listen to him and us. It's super cool. That's actually what I love about this is that Jeremy H is willing to challenge. Is somebody who, I mean, that's what I live for, right? Is somebody that listens to that, but still comes here and then questions that, but also questions us. You know, living among the indoctrinated is hard. Like if that's where you come up, that's why we have such a hard time. That person, again, that older person on Medicare, who is living on social security, maybe was a veteran that has resources from the VA, voting for somebody that wants to strip away all entitlements and and doing it with the hand on the heart and a Trump flag on their truck, right? That person is so fucking gone and they're so indoctrinated. Like, how do you fucking pull that person back? Because that's like a third of the country. Kind of needs some of them, right? So here's Jeremy who's like, I'm going to fucking look at everything. I know. I'm not mad at Jeremy. Yeah, yeah. No, you wonder like how that can fucking happen. Yeah. To me, that just that is a, a reflection of pure intellectual curiosity that, that, I, that I fucking love because I'm such an egomaniac that I actually know we're going to win that battle. Well, it's not even that part. I will. I'm not even fanning <laughs> your ego. He's just wrong. <laughs> like Peterson's historically just wrong, wrong. Yeah, yeah, and wrong in general. Yeah. He likes the carnivore diet. Or did at some point. But I, well, he's also out there just talking about, like, he, what did he say about the analogy that, that somebody taught me when I was doing, so we were, I was joking about it for another, it's a joking topic, but I actually did a lot of research into and was involved with a Holocaust organization for, for many, many years. And a Holocaust denial organization? Yeah. <laughs> what did you, why do you still, are you still on the mailing list? Yeah. That's a and, joke for legal purposes. Right. One of the first things one of the docents taught me was uh, showing me a, a picture of Adolf Hitler. And, and we've referenced this before because it was a really important moment for me to understand uh, the power of propaganda. So putting up a uh, they had this big picture in their center of, of Hitler and was talking about how this idea of the tall, strong, clean shaven, blue eyed, blonde hair Aryan was the prototypical human. That was what, that was the top of the food chain as delivered by a short, short brown hair, brown, brown hair, brown eye. I think he might have blue eyes. Really? Yeah. Mustached. Stumpy. Stumpy. Dumpy. dumpy, Humpty Dumpty. Fucking. Motherfucking stupid failed artist. who fuck, yeah, who fucking painted for a living. How yeah. effeminate is that, right? He used to paint bad paintings. This fuck, right? This jerk off. Yeah. I didn't like the effeminate part. I know we were playing a character, but. Well, that's, oh, I could only say that through I know. the lens of a character. Yeah, right? but maybe that's really what you think. It's not. Okay. It is. He had more feminine qualities in his per- in, than he did masculine qualities. I don't think we need this part. <laughs> There's, he did. What do you mean? That is, what do you, this doesn't mean nothing. It, it, no, because only because his entire mantra was be masculine, except 
he possessed more feminine qualities like about him. Like liking art? Classically feminine, what we well, would consider yeah. classically cultural feminine properties. So it, That's why that's belied, the problem for me. It's right? like, I understand. I totally understand. That's what you've taught me. But it belied his very existence statements and, and political, you know, everything that his party was based upon. Jordan Peterson to me is the same goddamn thing, right? So here is this scrawny Canadian intellectual who cries at, you know and and it gets fucking butt hurt when anybody criticizes him talking about the collapse of masculinity and that being the i mean that's it that is the core of his worldview is that all of our problems stem from the collapse of masculinity as delivered by this scrawny fucking so-called nice guy Canadian always dressed in a three-piece suit who's just opining about the loss of masculinity when he contains none of the characteristics that he said are so important to maintaining society. He's so fucking wrong-headed on every level and in every approach that he takes, even when he's using his own logic. Yeah. It works against him. Plus, when you dig deep into a lot of these people, there's just a, a foundational layer of eugenics. They all believe in That's eugenics. Right. It's true. Like, I'm not even being facetious. No, no, no. They, they're looking to create yeah, superior, something. Right. The superior man with the subservient woman and uh-huh. dumb people shouldn't breed and only a survival of the fittest and all this bullshit. Like, they're literally all eugenicists. It's disgusting. Disgusting. All right. Disgusting. Let's go over to social you know media. Video? How long is this so far? What are we clocking it's bad. in? It's bad, right? <laughs> yeah. Manny's going to fucking kill us. But do you know us. that video of the- Yeah, no, like, let's, let's extend no, this. No, it's important. What? It's the Scottish, she's a Scottish mom and two, two Scottish kids. No. And they're like going to sing a song and she comes in and she's like, which one of you shit and didn't flush the toilet? And they're like, <laughs> and she goes, well, it's one of you disgusting. I don't know it. Can wow. you play it? Yeah, sure. Manny, hit it. <laughs> I'm going to send Cher Lloyd by Cher Lloyd or Rebecca G. Then. And don't forget all the trouble we got into. Why does somebody not know how to flush the toilet after they've had a shit? What do you mean? Well, it was fucking one of yes. Disgusting! All right, over on Facebook. The Anthropocene outbreak said the USA has always had a gangsta streak. Since its early days, clearly obvious when it comes to healthcare. When Darwin said humans survive by adaptation, Americans read it as survival huh, of the fittest. Look at that. Brilliant. That makes perfect sense when you set out to breed a nation of human robots. Retweet. Wow, that was fucking timely. I know. I didn't even see that. Good stuff. John H. said, Rube Goldberg could not have imagined a more complicated journey to get a basic human need. No doubt. And Judy H. said, one more president campaigned on universal health care, Richard Nixon. That's true. We're going to cover that. And it was something called uh, the CHIP plan, by the way. It was called the Comprehensive Health Insurance Plan. And there was some merit to it. There's some shit there. I thought so, it was going to be like Chippendales. Yeah, it was the Chippendales. If we all just strip and get greasy, we'll live longer lives. That was more, I think, no, that was J. Edgar Hoover's plan. Not, not <laughs> Nixon's plan. 
That was a genuine laugh. Sorry. Thank you. Sorry it sounded like that. <laughs> Nathan E. said, yes, it begins. Sounds like PBMs are going to get the deep treatment. As an independent retail pharmacist. Oh, shit. Nathan E. is an independent retail pharmacist. Nathan E., one of my best friends on the planet, was an independent retail pharmacist. So interesting. And as the person that I got all the information about the PBMs from initially. I sincerely cannot wait for everyone to see the tomfuckery I deal with on a fucking daily. So the next episode does not include PBMs. I'm kind of saving that one for a little bit down the road. But yes, Nathan E., when we unfuck that one, it's going to be deep. And Darren P. said, I'm 45. If I can figure out healthcare, I plan to be mostly retired by 55. If employers are complaining about finding workers now, imagine how many 50-plus-year-old people and small business owners working corporate jobs for benefits would leave the workforce. Same reason we'll never see a return to the 30 and out pension model, forcing almost all workers to work an extra 15 to 20 years before retirement drives down wages. Darren P is hitting on something rather extraordinary. And I, I can't tease it out right now, but the, it's so interesting that we've actually created a system that requires people to work so much fucking more. Not just the productivity hours that we still blow the rest of the world away with during our prime working years, but the extension of these working years and the adding on of the gig economy and all of this. Our whole fucking existence here is about work. Completely different than other countries. And yet we find ourselves in a place where employers claim they can't find workers. And so if we did fix a lot of this system and people wound up leaving the workforce at a normal fucking time, it would create an even bigger crisis, so to speak, which is basically just a way of saying that corporations have no incentive to fix any of this shit. Really, really smart shit, Darren. As Kim Kardashian said, it seems like no one wants to work anymore. Get up your ass and work. Did she say that? Oh, yeah. Oh. Are you so divorced from, like, current memes? That sucks. Oh, you were a huge fan? No, but I, I like that she used her celebrity for some good during oh, yeah. the Trump years yeah. and thought that she was actually well, a little more progressive? Um, no, not. she's literally said, uh, I align with things, but I vote Republican for money. So she's like said that. Really? Yeah, I mean, she was she's also- She's not the Pepsi commercial one, is no, she? No, that's Kendall. She was also- That was amazing. She was also married to Kanye, who is was a huge Trump supporter, which obviously doesn't help anything. The only thing she did, the good thing she did, was try to become a lawyer to get people out of prison. Who so, are the people? Who, who are the, the sisters? Um, well, there's Chris is the mom. Yeah. And this, I've never seen an episode, truly. This is just osmosis of media. Yeah. Chris, then there's Kim, or there's Courtney, Kim, Chloe, and then Kendall and Kylie are the Jenners. Oh, my gosh. But then there's Rob, oh. who's a Kardashian. Okay. And then there's Brody Jenner. Oh, wow. Who's on the Jenner side. Not You've never seen an episode and you know their entire fucking family tree. Everybody does. Really? Yes. You can't. One of my kids does. You can't go anywhere the these days I without knowing. Fuck. Well, uh, no, I think they both. I, th I think they're amused by them. But I it have no comments. It used to be amusing, ironically. like, But now they're just, you know. They're fucking really good business people, though. Jesus Christ. They're yeah. worth so much fucking money. It's insane. Yeah, well, they're also there's people that have been more famous than them that haven't figured out how to capitalize on shit. Oh, for, Chris is a Chris is a very smart businesswoman. She's directed the entire family to this, but you know they're also responsible for 
millions of young girls having body image issues because you had to be have a skinny waist and a fat ass. And now they're all getting their butts dissolved. They're all getting their fillers out. So now they look different. And so it's like the standard's always evolving and changing and no one's ever good enough. Are you taking your fillers out? No. Does that mean I have to? Well, only if you want to look like them. Damn it. Okay. Twitter. This is specifically from the healthcare episode. Princess Cake said, Repost your musings, hate the industry, not what the medicine has done for us. Including the medicines in the hate is in the mindset that led us to the anti-vax movement. There you go. Thanks, Princess Cake. And then W. Jeremy D. My wife does a yearly medical mission. What is a C? Southeast Asia. Mm, I was like, in Seattle? (laughs) (laughs) And her main takeaway comparing the two systems is how profoundly wasteful our system is. Mm. Might also be mentioning RVU as a method for doctor compensation, how it leads to inefficiencies in care. Uh, Yeah, we're going to hit RVUs. We talked about that uh, a little bit earlier. We talked about that, right, up top? I think so. Um, This this idea, it's relative value units is an RVU. So it's it's guidance for how people should charge for procedures and stuff that happens. And it's going to it's actually going to be a, a relatively decent part of the next episode. So we will absolutely hit that W Jeremy D. Okay. And then Oquangulated, we got an update. So Oquangulated said part of unfucking healthcare will cry our hard look at the role of the legal system, specifically regu- regulatory failures and abuses, legislative capture and malpractice industry. And for reference, my Twitter handle is pronounced similar to Angle. So not Oquangulated, Oquangulated. Yeah. I mean, you were saying something wildly different. So Oquangulated. And then... Orangutangulated. Yeah. Travis said, excited to hear Max from UFTR Pod promote Jen Briney's Congressional Dish. Phone a friend collaboration would make me feel like a comic book fan. Getting a crossover issue featuring his favorite superheroes. Yeah, and, and funny enough, Manny is at the, what is it, Pod Movement in yeah. Dallas right now? Is that where it is? I think so. I think so too. He took a picture of Jen Briney on the stage. She was giving a. She was on a panel. Not in a creepy way. Yeah, yeah. No, no. He's like, hey, look. Yeah. We just talked about her. He also just messaged us and said that the Daily Wire has a booth. Burn it down. I know. I. Why are they allowed? This is my fucking problem. Take Burn a, it all. Take a stand. They should have said, mm, yeah, no. It's biggest, biggest podcast company in the industry. I don't care. It's amazing. I don't want their money. Why don't people have more morals? Why isn't everyone like me? I don't have an answer to that question. Do you have an answer to the first one? No, it's probably the same answer. People suck. <laughs> I know. They're in it for themselves. <sighs> Stupid. Okay, well, let's Well, hi, Jen Briney. Okay. Jen Briney, I know you have morals. That's right. And so on Instagram, this is completely unrelated, but Brian said, we should remind people to use their local libraries as much as possible. They offer so much more than just books now, and they're under attack by people who want to ban books like this one, which is a photo of the Field Guide to White Supremacy. This one is the only copy in circulation in the entire Cleveland system. That system connects hundreds of libraries in Ohio, and there's only one copy of this book. There's hundreds of J.D. Vance's book or an O'Reilly garbage. Oh, boy. Librarians in my town tell me that they have serious problems with people destroying or stealing or complaining that books getting removed all the time, and it's getting worse every day. Let's see. Mm. Kathleen Bellew. Bellew, Bellew? I'm not sure who this is. Is sending my library copies of her book here, but maybe if you use all talk about it on the show and tell people to request books like this from their libraries, more copies will be on the shelves for people to read instead of uh, Hillbilly Elegy or whatever O'Reilly is killing this week. Mm. 
So I thought this was a great point because we do often not harp on, but we encourage people to shop local in their bookstores. But libraries are an amazing part of our local infrastructure. They provide access to people who don't have the money. They provide internet access, great places to study. Love the library. My favorite place as a kid. Just like Matilda, another Matilda reference. But yep. And I thought maybe we have some uh, librarian on fuckers. Come out of woodwork. Tell us what's, what's going on. We have one in our uh, extended family, which is pretty neat. We do? Mm-hmm. In your personal extended family? Our extended family. Who's a fucking librarian? Should I know? Yeah. Wow. I forgot about okay. her. Well, that's because she's not a librarian. She's like an archivist in a library, I think. She, well, she's currently. both. Currently, yeah. yeah. But she's both, yeah. She, well, you she's confused been a career me. librarian. That I know, but yeah. I was thinking current. Okay. Over on Substack, Kirby said, I highly recommend an arm and a leg podcast and the book An American Sickness by Elizabeth Rosenthal, which not only provides a high-level history on our healthcare system, but some practical advice and context to understanding the systems. Kaiser Health News is dry but fantastic for keeping a breath on health-related policy, politics, news. And I think something you'd find interesting is the growth of Catholic hospital systems. Oh, yeah. And the partnerships with them. I would nudge you all to look at that and how the concept of a, quote, non-profit hospital is bullshit. Uh, Kirby, I can assure you that's going to be a big part of the next episode. You so said you. a breath instead of a breast. Is it because you're afraid of the word breast? I love the word breast. Where do, where was breast even in here? You said a breast. And you, you said a Keeping breast. a breast. Keeping a breath of health. Oh, it's great because it's right next to health. And mm, I think that you're just brain's tired. afraid to talk. I also have to pee really badly. Mm, keep going. Okay. And uh, Rotan Rick, right? Is this Rick R? I believe so. Said, I've been in healthcare since, oh, hey, since 1987, the day I graduated from high school. Worked in the emergency room since 90 and a nurse since 1994. I was an ER manager for over 15 years. Most recently moved into a position that I get to work more closely, review charts, and ensuring proper levels of care and billing. All these different fucking insurance companies and their fucking rules make me crazy. I see poor folks who don't get what they need upon discharge because their fucking insurance company won't cover it, including our vets. I'm going to leave that right there because that's somebody in the system for years and years and years just, you know, preaching some truth. So many common threads. Indeed. Indeed. And the Ugandan said, uh, regarding your request for healthcare questions, why is there so much equipment uh, and resource waste or misuse in hospitals? Who keeps hospitals accountable of their budgets, especially the not-for-profit hospitals? Why is healthcare not provided in most prisons? Wow, great question. And what is the relationship of nursing homes with healthcare? They've dropped the ball so much. Okay, so we're going to have to split out um, prison healthcare. It does exist. Well, in, okay, in most prisons. So the, jails versus prisons and the difference between federal and then state-level care. So that's interesting. Um, we'll split that out. That's got to be done differently, uh, separately. And then the relationship of nursing homes with healthcare. I think that's Just its own unfucking too. Andrew Cuomo. Yeah. What's he doing lately? Hold for it. Black and white and brown and Asian and short and tall and gay. All I know is that it spread real bad and a lot of people fucking died. Yeah. Like, they just killed people. Right. Oh, no, I'm just talking about the nursing, like nursing home specifically. Yeah. And then Andrew, you know, like to kill people. It was well, fun for him in the beginning. Yeah, that's that's Look, pop thing. at all the people I'm whacking. You'd be so proud. All right. Um, Why was he Christopher Walken? Oh, that was more Travolta. Oh, OK. Like Saturday Night Fever. OK, time, right? I heard it. Yeah. There's a fine line. 
It's probably not a fine line. I'm just probably bad at it. Do you want me to run through these? Go I had a pretty good Andrew a while back. And, you know, just Black and like white out in the wild. and brown. I can't hear in my head right now. Anyway, oh, let's get so into sad. donations. We can all we can always pull from Chris Cuomo's podcast. Maybe we should do phone a friend with him. It's not uh, it's not defunct yet. It, I think it was very quickly it was like it was on the charts and then it went. Yeah. Yeah. Want me to want me to fly through these? Let's do it. Normally, I like to give more more care, but I, who in are you even three. still here? <laughs> okay, Alfie and Flash is now a member. Kirby Awesome Sauce is now a member. Yellowstone Gadabouts is now a member saying my favorite podcast. Vincent is now a member saying something nice from Switzerland, smiley face. Wow, that's oh that's so cool. That's yeah. by that's uh by the Great Lakes near Ohio. <laughs> yes. Jim M is now a member. Keep up the good work. Bo underscore Riston is now a member. FMF. Indeed. Rebecca is now a member. Amazing podcast, enormously educational, and also entertaining. Jennifer C is now a member. With enormous gratitude to Max99, Manny, and Tom for opening my mind and heart. I'm a former, quote, moderate Democrat who now proudly identifies as a progressive. Love it. Who knew that in the process of unfucking a republic, he would also change me so much for the better. Wow. Yeah. That's really sweet. Damon H. is now a member. I've been a listener for just over a year. Came this way thanks to Best of the Left. I appreciate the level of research you do. Although my subscription isn't much, all of it helps. I'm using the money that I was donating to the DNC until after my election in 2020. Wow. That's awesome. Okay, read the end of it. Hashtag ketchup squad. Woo! <laughs> Send your money back. <laughs> Nate, a Nate S. is now a member. I love you. We'll never stop giving to the progressive beacon UNFTR is. Stifler's Daddy 420 is now a member. Keep up the great mm -hmm. work you're all doing. I stream you every day at my job site. Let me tell you the eye rolls I get on the regular. Ultra wealthy tend not to like us on fuckers, but hey, when you show up with an American flag letter that spray painted fuck Trump, I got used to the eye rolls quickly. Oh my God, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Jessica CS 90 Days of Rage is now a member. Wait, we got the whole Stifler family, by the way, now. I know. Thank you to the Stiflers. <laughs> and I believe Jessica CS is also in the, the Stifler ecosystem. Oh, she's got to be, yeah. Because it's the Colorado Springs yep. movement. So thank you, Jessica. And thank you, Jen. And Stifler's daddy. <laughs> uh, Maria from Puerto Rico hey! brought us six coffees. Oh, wow. These coffees are the interview with Tom for the episode with Jay and for the Newsbeat episode. And very belatedly for Bookstore Kim. Oh. Thank you for your kindness. And then lastly, wait, uh, I think that this sounds like Bobby McDee and Maria are going to meet soon. Oh, my God. Thank you it's so much for letting us get to know you, to know each other. The fifth coffee is for Knudsen. And the unfuckers he put together on Facebook. And the sixth is for the Irish royalty, the very kind Irish writer on fucker whom we will happily meet in Dublin soon. I think that's the first meetup. Oh, my God. At least, um, the first meetup of, of two just pure stranger on fuckers. Oh, that's so weird. Send and all cool. the pictures. <sighs> Maria, if you want to buy me a plane ticket, I'll come. Yeah, great. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love that. Uh, and lastly, Nathan Surst bought a coffee. Mm -hmm. Here's $5 to get your children book line started <laughs> with the authors and artists you have. I'm sure someone could start one. We got them all. We had a few a few write-ins about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bobby McDee and I are, uh, we're going to hash this out. We're going to figure this out. And um, some other good things, some other good collaborations that we're thinking about that uh, might be a lot of fun. We're going to have to mention this again in an upcoming episode because I can't imagine anybody is still with us at this point at the end of the episode. <laughs> but... If we're going to make a call for artists, graphic artists, visual artists, uh, illustrators in particular, to help us collaborate on a project, uh, we want it to be uh, primarily listener driven. So we want to connect with anybody out there, 
So what do, what do you think is the best way to uh, just send us an email maybe with uh, artist as the subject line so we can kind of sort them just so I can keep them all in one place? Yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll set up like a little landing page. Like okay. UNFTR.com slash artist. Okay, just a quick form to submit. Yeah, and it's just like, and if you're a writer, videographer, like, well, we're using artists in the broad term. So yeah, but just, right now, specifically looking for uh, illustrators. No, I know, but right? I want to open it to the future. Yeah, we definitely. never know. So just send us your submissions, and that way we'll be able to, you know, aggregate them in our in our backend. And we have a couple. Of, so if you're listening to this and you've already said that in the past, yeah, we know. We're, we got we you. We got you. Yep. Got you. I got all of you. All right, unfuckers. Wait, we have a review. We do? Mm-hmm. Put your glasses back on, Grandpa. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well, you say it, because I can't fucking say <laughs> I, it. I don't know. It is a bunch of letters. <laughs> N-cog-bino. Voted for Clinton twice. Clearly, I was not paying attention. I did think that a really smart guy would be able to keep his pants zipped. Guess not. Unfuckers, thanks so much for coming along this journey. Sorry. Sorry that I was yelling. There's no, there's no sorries in this studio. And I'm not uh, actually sorry, but I'm placating. We're never sorry. Some people are gonna not like what I said. I'm sure. I think it was a, I think it was a spirited discussion that people will respect. Yeah, and at the end of the day, you can go fuck yourself. No, We talked about that. Uh, unfuckers, thank you so much for coming along for the journey. We appreciate you. There's gonna be, we're gonna mix it up this week. So look no one's forward. gonna hear it. <laughs> I know we're gonna mix it up this week anyway. So if you have made it to the bitter end here, there's gonna be some different things this week in the drop, and that's it. All hail Nettie. <laughs>